You're listening to episode 49 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the stories of Bouncing Boy, the Cadmus DNA Project, and the Silent Knight. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and my excitement for covering the penultimate issue of Secret Origins is surpassed only by the excitement I feel about the guests appearing on this episode. Later on, I'll be joined by Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Podcasts and Howard Simpson, the artist who worked on Secret Origins, Young All-Stars, and other DC comics. But first... I've got one more story about the Legion of Superheroes to talk about, and I couldn't in good conscience do this show without subjecting some Legionnaire to the hot-or-not treatment. Thus, I am happy to welcome Siskoid back to the show. Hello, Siskoid. Hi. As well as two of the wonderful ladies from the Hot or Not feature on the Legion of Superbloggers and on Ohatmu or Not. First, Shotgun, welcome. Hi. And Natalie, welcome to the show. Hey. Bienvenue. It is great to have all of you. <laughs> Did that sound at all close to what it's supposed yeah, to be? Yeah, yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Bienvenue. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure we're not, we're not going to French shame you. No, I'm sure no. you're shame <laughs> Uh, It's great to have all of you on this episode. In case any of your regular listeners or readers are checking out this podcast for the first time, we should tell them what Secret Origins is all about. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins, Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And the origin of Bouncing Boy is not the shortest story in Secret Origins, but at two pages, it's pretty close. So before we get to the story, Siskoid and I have already talked about the Legion of Superheroes and the Legion of Substitute Heroes, so I want to hear from the ladies. How did you discover the Legion? Was it through Hot or Not? And how did you get roped into doing this type of feature? How did this whole kind of process come for you? Uh, We'll start with Shotgun. Actually, it might be better that you start with uh, Natalie because she was there when the conversation was was held. I wasn't. That was special. So I'll let her go first. Okay, Natalie, how did it begin? (laughs) Uh, yeah, we well, Siskoid invited us to go eat at an Indian restaurant, <laughs> and uh, we were sitting around a table and we were just talking about comics and other random things. And the subject came up that it could be really funny for us to because we didn't know almost anything about this beforehand, like at least for me. 
And I think for pretty much everyone else, we were pretty much a clean slate uh, coming into this. So he thought it would be a really funny idea. We were a little bit worried they were going to offend everyone on the planet. <laughs> um, but <laughs> we got a good response back, so I was really proud of that. Uh, but yeah, basically we're just eating Indian food when this happened. <laughs> Shotgun, is that how you remember it? Uh, basically, I wasn't invited to that uh, dinner party <laughs> because well. I was out of town. I was yeah, out of town. Right it's fine. <laughs> so I came back and never heard of this conversation. And Cisco had started that conversation on Facebook talking about Legionnaire and comic reviews. And I had no idea what they were talking about. It was so weird. So I just told him, I, I think you made a mistake. Why am I in here? <laughs> and he just pitched me the idea at that point. Uh, I had never heard of the Legionnaire before. Uh, and that's how I got in. When it finally came time to the character that we're going to be discussing today, Bouncing Boy, do you remember how each of you felt about the character at the time when you first, you know, your general first impressions of this character? Uh, for me, like, Cisco always sends us a description to read first. So even before, like, I look at the picture, I always read the description. And the description was super endearing. Like, I'm all for, like, a funny guy that's a good listener and sweet. And his description was so great that my first instinct was, yes, hot. <laughs> before we even saw the picture, I was like, I'm down. But then when we saw the picture, he looked so, like, lovable and cute. And I was game. I was game the whole time, honestly. <laughs> I've read the your reporting on that. And Shotgun, you did not feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. I, I, it was the same, though. I read the description before seeing the picture. And I was game. And then when I saw the picture, I had to be honest. Uh, it, it wouldn't have been someone I would go for in a normal, in a regular uh, setup, I guess. But uh, I was game to get to know him at least and try to see if we could at least be friend. I guess. And if someone else comes along with a Sparks or something, then But he's got sure. such a great personality. Yeah, no, and, definitely. And he's and husband material, too. <laughs> yes, uh, we clearly. saw that. <laughs> As usual, the girls like the character's mate a lot more than the character themselves. <laughs> like, Triple Kid Girl got rave reviews. Duo Damsel got rave reviews. Uh, Bouncing Boy, mm, ambivalent. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes sense, makes sense that Nat likes him because he's a little bit like her boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, he really is. <laughs> That's true. Marty from The Lonely Hearts. Yeah. Actually, that might be the problem. Maybe it reminds me too much of my ex. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're not talking about the same Marty, are we? No. But no, no, okay. no. no my, <laughs> Marty's not my ex. Okay. But they, they oh, have no. the same they have the same look. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Especially when he's like the sea captain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cisco, what is your overall general kind of take and impression of Bouncing Boy? I love Bouncing Boy. He's, um, as you know, uh, we, we spoke of this before, but my, uh, my first look at the Legion, the 30th century, mm -hmm. was a Legion of Substitute Heroes story. And then the first issue of Legion of Superheroes I ever bought was really a, um, a spotlight on Legion Academy with Bouncing Boy and Duodamsel teaching and having important roles. Mm -hmm. And this story that we're going to cover is kind of a companion to that, to the other origin, the Substitute Heroes origin. You know, same artist and, and same feeling. So these characters are all connected for me and to me. So I like Bouncing Boy. I do too. And I don't know what this says about me. I tend to favor a lot of the characters in groups like this, whether it's the X-Men or the Legion, the characters who don't look sort of 
who wouldn't be conventionally hot, I should say. Characters like Chameleon Boy, I really like, and Bouncing Boy, I really like. And I think the way I discovered the character was, of all things, I got a set of DC Hero Clicks figures, like a five-pack. Only time I've ever gotten a DC Hero Clicks, uh, and I don't know why I did it. I was at a bookstore, and I just random, eh, let's see what this thing is. And I picked up a pack, and one of the characters in it was Bouncing Boy, who just looks like this ball with these tiny little head, hands, and, and like feet that's sticking up. But like, and he, he goes on this post, and if you take him off that, I'm pretty sure you can just throw it like a marble. Uh, so maybe just because of that, that connection sort of made the character a little bit more endearing to me. For what other characters, like uh, Natalie, do, do you remember which other characters you found particularly hot? That's what I'm trying to remember. It's easier to say who we really didn't like. <laughs> like, those stick to my mind more. Okay, so who was the, who was the notest then? Sunboy, hands down. We hate Sunboy. Why? We brought him up so many times. I don't know. Maybe it's just, maybe Discord was making it worse uh, because he kept putting really awful quotes from him later on. But he was not a favorite at all. He just seemed like a jerk. Yeah, he was seen like a complete jerk, head to toe. Like he and was super this- full of himself and he kept mocking everybody else that we liked for some reason. <laughs> Not a fan of that guy. All right. So some of the other Legionnaires who have appeared on Secret Origins, we'll kind of do this in, in rapid succession if you remember. Uh, Shadow Lass, the woman with blue skin who can control and manipulate shadows. Well, if she's a girl, we liked her. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. Okay, so the fa- same would probably hold true for Phantom Girl. Yes, we really um, liked Phantom Girl. I remember her. Okay. I actually really like her right now uh, doing the reboot uh, review as Apparition. I think she's great. And I'm pretty sure I scribed that name right. Yep. Yeah. No, you did it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then there were three posthumous entries in Secret Origins. There was Karate Kid. Do you remember Karate Kid? <laughs> yes, we, I remember Karate Kid. Because <laughs> it just felt silly the entire time. <laughs> I had a hard time taking that seriously. Okay. <laughs> what about Ralph Macchio in the movie Karate Kid? Was that hot or not? Eh, hot. I'd go hot. I haven't seen that movie in ages. I wouldn't be able to tell. <laughs> wow. Hey, he's pretty good. Who else have they done? Cisco? Pharaoh Lad? Pharaoh Lad has a mask. I don't know if you can ever actually see his face. No, but I do remember that we liked the idea of him, though. And his description was pretty great, that his character, but... Yeah, it's kind of hard for us, and a lot of us on the panel uh, likes hair and the mm-hmm. eyes and all this stuff. So with a little it's kind of hard. Yeah, especially because you know we don't have a lot to go off of. So like, if we can't see the face, that you're not starting on the right foot. Like that makes it really hard for you to become hot. Uh, well, then, what about somebody like a a Monel or a Superboy? Oh, I remember uh, Monel was actually uh, the first that got a uh, hot all over, right? Yeah, oh. I think you're right. Science girl married him. <laughs> yes, she was married to him for the rest of the time we did this. <laughs> Universal hotness. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. All right, uh, I think that's all I've got for the Hot or Not feature. I was just going to jump really quickly into the publication history for Bouncing Boy and Siskoid. If I leave anything out, feel free to throw something in or correct me at the end. 
Bouncing Boy was one of several members of the Legion of Superheroes to make his first appearance in Action Comics number 276 back in 1961. Roughly one year later, he appeared in Action Comics 287. Six months after that, he joined the Legion's regular exploits and adventure comics, starting with issue 301 in a story called The Secret Origin of Bouncing Boy. Throughout the rest of the 1960s, Bouncing Boy appeared in nearly half of the Legion's adventure comic stories. In the 70s, Bouncing Boy appeared a dozen times in issues of Superboy, and then the retitled Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. From the next rebranding, when the book became Legion of Superheroes, until the end of the Baxter series, Bouncing Boy maintained a roughly 40% appearance ratio. After that, he appeared in the five years later Legion of Superhero series, the Legionnaires series, the Final Crisis Legion of Three Worlds miniseries, the Resurrected Adventure comics that came out before Flashpoint, and the New 52 Legion of Superhero series. He's been a regular fixture in the team for 55 years. Uh, Cisco, any major things that I left out? The Legion of Superheroes cartoon. He's uh, like one of the major characters in that and got a bit of a cool, kind of a cool kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he brought the humor to it, but was also, you know, a, a well-grounded character. So uh, it was a pretty important part for him. All right, listeners, we're going to take a short promo break, but we will be back in a minute with the origin of Bouncing Boy. So stick around. So which is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Ant-Man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? (laughs) What about uh, White Tiger? What about White Tiger? (laughs) Doc Samson. Star Fox. That's a video game. The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. has a June 1990 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, the actual on-sale date was April 17th that year. Mark Wade edited the issue, and even though he worked on several of the stories that appeared in issue 50, this was the last book in the series that he edited. Carl Kessel, or Kessel, I never know how to pronounce that, Carl Kessel drew the action-packed cover depicting the Newsboy Legion, along with the Guardian and a monster named Angry Charlie zipping through the tunnels of Cadmus in a hover car, with Bouncing Boy, well, bouncing off the walls, and a newspaper with Silent Night on the cover fluttering in the foreground. Nat, what do you think of the cover? 
I think, well, there's a lot going on, right, honestly. But I think my favorite part is that there's, like, a tiny newspaper saying that Bouncing Boy is getting an origin. <laughs> that I really enjoy. Like, it's a small detail. Like, it's next to him in the corner. Like, just so you guys know, this is going to happen here. Yeah, that good. makes me giggle. <laughs> Shotgun, what do you think? Uh, basically the same as Nath. There's so much going on on that cover, but um, I really like how the, the way the newspaper are flying basically came from that flying car, and the people in there, they just... It, it just seems not understanding what's going on at all. <laughs> and I, I how, how did they end up in that situation in the first <laughs> place? I don't know. They were just, like, delivering the newspaper. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. But I must admit that I feels like Bouncing Boy doesn't even belong in that cover. It's just <laughs> yeah. there as a plus. Technically, he thing. doesn't belong in that cover. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> he, he probably he probably could have been incorporated into another newspaper, just like Silent Night. Cisco, what do you think? Yeah, well, I, I love Carl Kessel's art. And Bess and I did cover the Newsboy Legion and Guardian and all of this mm-hmm. kind of stuff in the Invasion podcast uh, some weeks ago. All these characters are near and dear to my heart, except the Silent Knight, who I don't really care for. I don't know how the Daily Planet got a picture of the Silent Knight <laughs> out in the and past. Like a, a really good picture of him, too. <laughs> yeah, a character from Camelot, somehow. Yeah, don't ask, just buy it. So, uh, but yeah, the, the same goes for the Bouncing Boy thing. I mean, the, the Daily Planet's kind of misleading. Bouncing Boy gets an origin. He already had one, you know. It's yeah. not like he just got one. Although, if the paper was published uh, in the '80s, then I guess they got the origin before anyone else, because Bouncing Boy is going to be born in another 900 and so years. Yeah. I think I come down to Nat's original seg- assessment, which is I look at this and I'm like, "Wow, there's a lot going on here," <laughs> and it's it's action packed, which is something I would generally like. There is a sense of a story within this cover, uh, which I like because we've got a ton of characters. They're obviously in a chase or they're racing away from these soldiers. I I look at this and I want to know more about it, but at the same time, it is so crowded. And it feels like, okay, we get the Newsboy Legion and Guardian, we get Silent Night, we get Bouncing Boy. They all have stories in this. But to me, it feels like the focus of this cover is this red monster that is part of the Newsboy Legion story, a, a big part, but it's like that's not that's not the named character, and yet I feel like that's what I am drawn to, and that's where my eye goes when I look at this. And that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's, me too. It's probably too many buildings as well. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, background is. I'm trying to figure out if they're just like a building that looks very 30th century, just above Guardian. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like the Legion HQ, but then maybe it's all Cadmus stuff. There's no Camelot building. I, I I'm not sure what the background is supposed to be. But it's a cool image. It's a it's a really good image. It's a really it's really nicely drawn. But as a cover, I mean, it's not going to be. It's not going to make my list of favorite covers of the series. And I think it's just because I, if you took the text away, I don't know what I'm looking at, and I don't know what I'm going to get from this. That's that's my one real complaint. Anyway, opening the book, looking at page one and page two of this issue, the not-so-secret origin of Bouncing Boy, a tale of the 30th century told all too quickly in just two pages, is written and illustrated by Ty Templeton. As a teenager, Chuck Tane worked as a lab assistant to Dr. F. Tura, 
One day, the doctor tells Chuck to take a bottle of super plastic fluid to the science council. He warns Chuck to be careful with the bottle, which he neglected to cover with a top of any sort. But instead of going right to the science council, Chuck goes to watch a robo-warrior tournament. And I can't say I blame him. Caught up in the excitement of the match, Chuck mistook the super plastic fluid for his bottle of red-hot soda and drank down the whole formula. The result is Chuck ballooning up like a giant rubber ball. The spectators sitting around him watched the horrifying transformation, though none of them bothered to help in any way. In giant ball form, Chuck bounced down the steps of the stadium and realized that it didn't hurt. He tried to impress the founders of the Legion of Superheroes with this painless bouncing ability. They were not impressed. But two days later, he proved his value by thwarting a criminal with an electricity gimmick because while bouncing, Chuck could not be grounded and proved impervious to electric attacks. And after that, the Legion more or less welcomed Chuck into their ranks as Bouncing Boy. And that is the story. Um, it probably has the longest title of any secret origin story, considering <laughs> it's one of the shortest, although it's not the shortest origin story in this entire series. Um, general first impressions. Uh, ladies first. Shotgun, what did you think of the story? Why the hell would the professor entrust a bottle, an open bottle, to someone <laughs> when it's, so, it's, it's something that's dangerous? That was my first impression. I mean... What the hell? He was asking for it. Uh, and you mentioned it in the hypnosis, the fact that no one in the audience helped him while he was having is, um, they were saying it was an allergic reaction and they were just looking at it and not doing a single thing. I think it's really funny. Uh, I just, I just love the whole thing. Uh, I think that's realistic, though, too. Like, if I was in a crowd and a guy just started to blow up like a balloon, I don't think I'd do anything either. I'd probably just look at it, honestly. It's hard to gauge what your first impression would be in that situation. (laughs) Like, I don't know what you're supposed to do in that situation. Like, do you call 911? I don't know. (laughs) Get some water, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Cisco, what did you think? Well, obviously, I love this stuff. I love, uh, you know, in um, panel four, we can split it up in panels. Mm-hmm. Panel four, where Bouncing Boy reaches for the wrong bottle, and uh, well, he obviously doesn't read the arrows that are pointing. No, look out! No, no. <laughs> so, Ty Templeton as narrator is always like very cheeky about it. Of course, the weirdest difference between this story and the much longer uh, story in um, Adventure Comics number three hundred one is that here the soda is called Red Hot Soda. In the original, it's called cold soda, and the bottle's blue or oh. yellow. Yeah. I was actually – okay, I was going to wonder. I'm, I'm not sure why they needed the change, but I was wondering why he made it. Like there's actually a vendor walking through the stand saying, soda here, get your red hot soda. Like, Is that something that's going to be appealing in the, in the future? Do people want to drink <laughs> red hot soda? It's just like those candy hearts melted down. <laughs> Spicy cinnamon drink. But the original, the, the guy's got cold soda patches on his jacket and like he's selling cold soda. Get your cold soda. And it, it's like opposites. It's very strange. I guess maybe red hot soda seems more futuristic, more science fiction. Yeah, cold soda is not great. I mean, it's, it's great. Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's something we have. <laughs> right. 
would the would the bottle be actual like room temperature if it's hot soda? Because then I feel like if you would reach down and try to pick up like a cold bottle, you'd notice pretty quickly that you're not grabbing the right one. That you're drinking plastic. Yeah, that's maybe, my um, guess. <laughs> maybe we're thinking about it the wrong way. Maybe Red Hot is just the brand. Like Pepsi or Coca-Cola uh, yeah. or something. It's just yeah, it's <laughs> probably a, I think cold soda is supposed to be a brand. It's <laughs> branding well, in the thirtieth century isn't great. <laughs> no, it's lame. <laughs> uh, one other thing I really liked is how the the story is self-aware of its length. Uh, especially at the last panel in less than one panel our hero saves the day I really love that yeah I love that too because the, the villain did beat Saturn Girl yeah she's on their floor yeah. there yeah. yeah she's um, poor Saturn Girl was that actually consistent with the original story from Adventure 301 like did this guy how many Legionnaires had he fought when Bouncing Boy took him out or had he fought any of them only Saturn Girl was there, and then uh, Bouncing Boy shows up. It's it's told much. It's much longer a story, and uh, Bouncing Boy does try different things to try to get the Legion to take notice. Uh, but every time he tries to take part in, like to stop a, a disaster or a crime, it turns out to be oh no, it's just like uh, fireworks. It's just a balloon. It's just um, so everything he tries to do, you know, n- none of it is is worthy enough to, for him to become a hero. At the end. You know, Cosmic Boy's not that <laughs> apathetic. Like, oh, well, what the hell? You know, no, this, the Scoot Origins here, it says, well, okay, whatever. <laughs> but in the original, he's rather happy to find, oh, I guess your power does have a practical use. I was wrong. It's much more the Cosmic Boy that, that we know, who's like a, a good leader. And and then there's, you see the whole ceremony where he gets inducted. So there's more of a celebration there. And you see younger heroes who didn't make it, and people we don't know, uh, all go like, oh, wow, Bouncing Boy, he made it. So maybe I'll make it. It's like it's like a lesson in perseverance and in uh, even the lowliest power might have a, a usefulness and you can be a hero, whatever. So, you know, the original story has a lesson to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he's a role model for the kids. He's he's an aspirational figure for the Legion yeah. of Substitute Heroes. Yeah, yeah, or for any kid who's uh, kind of chubby or yeah. not athletic, uh, you know, to have like a person like him in a superhero team is, I think, important. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I also just – one of the reasons I've always liked him is just purely aesthetic. I think because he brings a different visual, and maybe that's one of the reasons why I like characters like Bouncing Boy and Chameleon Boy. And like on the X-Men, I like Nightcrawler and Beast and Colossus because they look a little bit different. They provide a sense of variety when you get large groups of characters that all look like young, beautiful you know, action stars. I agree. That gets boring after a while. Yeah. We want more diversity. <laughs> <laughs> Not just in skin color, but in shape. Yeah, yeah, all over the place. Well, skin color would take a while, <laughs> except for Brainiac 5 or, you know, oh, the, no. uh, the first black person in the Legion was, you know, very, very late. Yeah. I had a question for you, Cisco. In the uh, the first panel, actually, the doctor, did I get that right? F. Tura? Well, I, I don't know what the pronunciation would be okay, in well, Interlac. <laughs> is, is there anything it's about... It's actually Bob. Futura? I would have like, said Futura. Futura. There's an, is there an apostrophe there? I think it's a space or... No, there's an apostrophe. Okay, there's Futura. a... Futura, okay. Uh, Dr. F. Futura? F. Tura? No, Futura. Is there right? anything substantive about that character? Like, is he, is, does he have a part in that original origin of Bouncing Boy story? 
It has exactly the same part. He's okay. just, because the way the story is told, mm-hmm. really, you've got it, – it's like, a, you know, Bouncing Boy is already a, a member of the team. So it's uh, – there's a story going on and then they recall mm-hmm. the story of Bouncing Boy and what um, – how, how he got in. So the, the, the professor looks a bit different. He doesn't wear a hat and his skin tone isn't orange. Uh, but it's essentially the same character with essentially the same dialogue. But um, it's, it's less played for comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He actually gets one panel more in this story than he did in the original. Okay, so he only got one in the original. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually just noticed that he has four legs. Oh, yeah. Okay. They, they changed his race. <laughs> they changed his species. <laughs> Because he was just like a human. He looked like, uh, you know, just a man with a, a mustache. He looked like R.J. Brand. I like to think he actually accidentally drank a potion that gave him two other legs. That's what I'm... <laughs> you know, if you keep on just putting potions around without a cover, it might have happened. No, but I, I want to read that story now of like how he had, he's like four weird alien legs. And he's like, oh, man, I really should have put a cover on that. Well, I'll, I'll definitely remember next time I'll put a cover on the bottle. I'll definitely remember and, next time. Time. And like the Dalek stock, and what <laughs> yeah. is that? Yeah, yeah. There's something insectoid about him, like with that weird antenna. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I I want to know more about this relationship with him. This <laughs> weird, absent-minded professor and Chuck Tane as an even more absent-minded like intern. Bouncing boy, year zero. Yeah, I want that story. <laughs> Overall thoughts. I mean, does this having read the story, do you like Bouncing Boy more, less, the same? I do remember that Cisco had actually sent us the fourth and fifth panel to explain how we got the power. Mm-hmm. So to have the whole story now, I mean, at first I was confused as to why you would have drank that, confusing <laughs> it with his red soda. But then seeing his, the, the professor that is also so absent-minded, I guess it makes so much more sense. And yeah. can I just point out also that the fact that there is a sign saying Superhero Clubhouse... <laughs> on the <laughs> on the building that that's really subtle. <laughs> well, we have already discussed that the 30th century has a problem with branding. Yep. <laughs> yeah. They put signs on everything, yeah. and they did actually do that in the Silver Age yeah. stories. That's not a joke for this comic. That was how it was. <laughs> that's so weird. Well, you think that they would try to hide their clubhouse just no, not to. You know, so so bad guys couldn't find them. But no, no, it's just <laughs> right there. That sign takes on a whole other weird meaning if you know the story of Fortress Lab. But uh, we won't get into that one. That was for a different episode. I like the story. It's nice and short, but I like the character. There's something I think that is very charming and fun about Bouncing Boy. And I think going back to your original thoughts when you did the Hot or Not feature on Legion of Super Bloggers, he's very likable. He seems like the kind of guy you would want to hang out with. Whether he's dating or marriage material, that's you know to each his or her own. But uh, he definitely seems like a very gregarious and friendly sort of character. And I think it's great that he sort of became kind of a teacher figure for some of the younger students or the the Legion Academy folks. Yeah, and it's kind of cool because he can be like a really like a role model for different type of people in that role, which I think is cool. Like he's not like the typical guy that you would assume would be involved. So in a teacher position, I think that's particularly interesting. And Nat and Shotgun should know this well. They've both been teachers. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that would have been their profession. And he was the morale officer. He like a self-proclaimed morale officer in the Legion when he was a member. And then uh, 
you know, like one of the few legionnaires who got married and then drummed out of the legion because of constitutional rules, uh, became a teacher, became a mentor to other characters. And even in like future continuities, uh, in the reboot, for example, they used him more as a support player uh, where he didn't have the powers, but he was like the uh, engineer of the HQ is like the maintenance man, uh, but brilliant and eventually created a ship for them, which he called the Bouncing Boy, which was kind of a, rot- a rotund spaceship. And he named it the Bouncing Boy because, you know, in that continuity, he never became that superhero. Mm. Uh, but he and Matter Eater Lad were in both of those positions. Uh, one was a cook and one was the engineer, but they still had a lot of stories for them. And uh, and they were always like positive influences for the other Legionnaires. So it's, it's nice to have like a brighter kind of character in these teams where the others can be angsty and uh, live through uh, defeats and victories but when you go home, these are your friends waiting for you and dependable. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, all three of you, for being on this episode of the Secret Origins podcast. Natalie, DJ Nat, where can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? What other projects would you like to promote? Uh, I have a YouTube channel. It's called MindLinks. So if you guys want to check that out, they'd be really awesome. Thanks. Shotgun? We do the review of the reboot of the Legion of Superheroes, Cisco and I, uh, on the... Um, Legion of Super Bloggers? <laughs> exactly, that, the Legion of Super Bloggers, so check that out. Yeah, every, and of course, every Tuesday, yeah. Of course, we have the Hard or Not that, are, that is still coming a uh, lot less often than it, than it was before, but still <laughs> we're looking into uh, finding some new material to review. And the uh, Hotmo or Not podcast on the Fire and Water podcast channel what is it network right network (laughs) so the fire and water podcast network and siskoid uh well i'm also doing all those things except mind linked (laughs) (laughs) yeah in all those projects you'll find these uh lovely girls and others as well i'm also doing uh first strike invasion the lonely hearts romance comics podcast and um i've roped myself into (laughs) somehow rope myself into doing a companion podcast for your own, Ryan, your own Give Me Those Star Wars called Give Me That Star Trek. It's the Mirror Universe (laughs) version of your show. You know, I'll probably be spawning new podcasts or blog ideas for years to come because I'm insane. (laughs) I can confirm. (laughs) You succumb to the peer pressure for that Star Trek one, but I'm pretty sure it was all generated by yourself. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. Pressure myself into it. Oh, well. Well, you, you threw out the idea, like, should I do this? And nobody talked you down. We were like, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's like, mm, whatever, if you like. Yeah. And I then mean, I, I, think, I think we were, we were being very sort of passive aggressive, but like inside we were like, well, we don't care if he doesn't really have time for it, if it's going to interrupt things. We would like to listen to that. So, yeah, nobody, <laughs> nobody say no. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went on Facebook and forced myself. Yeah, you, you outed the podcast in advance to make sure that you had to do it. Yeah. I was like, I was Fire and Water Network talking to, forcing Siskoid to do it. And Siskoid going, really? You want me to do this, Fire and Water Network? And then Fire and Water Network, which was me, was answering back. So, yeah, I, I sort of really push myself into it. Anyway, that's what I do. Uh, you like it. That's what you do. That's what I do. <laughs> well, one more time, Siskoid, you have appeared on this show many, many times, and I have enjoyed every one of your appearances, every one of our discussions. I thank you. You were one of the very first people to be on this podcast. I'm glad you're one of the last people to be on it. Um, 
DJ Nat and Shotgun, you are wonderful. Thank you very much for agreeing to be on this episode. It was great to talk to you. Uh, I want to thank all three of you one more time. And listeners, we're going to take another promo break, but I will be back in a minute with the story of the Newsboy Legion and the Cadmus DNA Project. So don't go away. It's midnight. The podcasting hour. Hello, listeners. It's your friend, PJ Frightful. That's PJ as in podcast jockey. And I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The Podcasting Hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. back to talk about the origin of the Newsboy Legion. Now, you might be asking, Ryan, didn't you already cover the Newsboys back on episode 19? Well, yes, but that story retold the origin of the Golden Age Guardian and Newsboys. The story in this issue deals with the second generation of the Newsboy Legion, who were part of the Cadmus DNA project in the pages of Superman comics. And here to help me unpack this story is a professional artist who has worked on comics, animation, storyboarding, and graphic design. You may know his work from DC's Young All-Stars or the Valiant comics Harbinger and Turok Dinosaur Hunter. He also contributed to the secret origins of the Manhunters, the Rogues, and Doctor Occult. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Howard Simpson to the show. Hello, Howard. Hey, Ryan. Happy to be here. Thank you very much for being on this episode. It's, it's a pleasure to have you, somebody who actually worked on Secret Origins. You know, it's great to have somebody like that on this show one time before the end of the series. <laughs> Giving the listeners a little backstory, you wrote to me a couple of months ago and asked to be on the episode that covers the Newsboys. And I admit to being a little confused because, as we will talk about when we cover the story, you didn't draw this story. But when I brought that up, you responded with a very simple explanation that you're a fan of these characters. You've always liked them. So how did that come about? How and when did you discover the Newsboy Legion? Well, I discovered the Newsboy Legion in Jimmy Olsen, number 133, 
Mm-hmm. This is when Jack Kirby came over to DC Comics. And while I wasn't really, you know, much of a Jimmy Olsen fan, that cover and plus DC had been advertising, you know, that something big was happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, little did I know, you know what it was, but that Jimmy Olsen cover where him and these motorcycle gang are running over Superman. I mean, it was very different from anything I had ever seen before from DC. And I had always been a DC fan. So, you know, I wasn't that much into Marvel. I didn't really know that much about Jack Kirby. So this was like, you know, a breath of fresh air. I mean, the only artist that generated as much assignment at that time was Neil Adams. Mm -hmm. But Neil wasn't really writing that much. And he definitely didn't do what Kirby did with Jimmy Olsen. I mean, it was just so, so exciting. And just in one issue, just in that issue, 133, Kirby introduced all these concepts, the wild area, the whiz wagon, the habitat, the mountain of judgment, you know, the return of a newsboy legion. Now, the newsboy legion was new to me, so I didn't know there was a return. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just like a gang of kids. And, you know, I grew up in a big family uh, with three brothers and two sisters. And, you know, just seeing how the newsboy legion acted. You know, it's kind of kind of reminded me of, of me and my brothers. I mean, we didn't have anywhere near the kind of ventures they did, but you know, <laughs> just just that camaraderie. You know, basically, it just knocked me off my feet. I mean, um, I'd never seen anything like this from DC before. Yeah, you mentioned that you had been a DC fan, that they had been advertising it for a couple of months before that with just sort of this vague, Kirby is coming. And then when he showed up, Kirby is here, I think, on the cover of 133. What had you been reading before that? Like, what were the books that you were reading before that issue? I was a big World's Finest fan. I loved the Superman-Batman team, uh, Legion of Superheroes. Well, they were in reprints at that time. And that, that's another thing. I mean, that's one thing that I think is missing from the younger generation because you can't really find out the backstory or, or comics that were previously published because they're no more 80-page giants. So, well, I think if they published them today, they would cost, you know, $30. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think they call them the Marvel Masterworks and yeah. Showcase and everything else now. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's not it's not so handy to, to publish them now, even though they should be able to do it digitally at a much more reasonable price. It shouldn't have to be for $25 or anything. I mean, I think they could do this. These things were published over 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 20, even the stuff from 20 years ago, even the Kirby stuff. You know, could could easily be done digitally to to be accessible and not at exorbitant prices. I'm assuming we will get to that point at something, but I I think there's got to be sort of a a sea change in the the relationships between the actual brick and mortar comic book retailers and the digital publishers. Until then, I think we're at a a stalemate where the digital isn't going to reduce their prices because they don't need to, but. Anyway, uh, I'm eager to get into this story, but before we talk about you know the project and the Newsboys, I've got a few questions. Since I've got you here, I've got to do something approaching a proper interview. So <laughs> first question, how did you start working in comics? Well, if I answer that question directly, it's going to seem like magic, you know, <laughs> like it just happened out of nowhere, like I didn't put any effort into it. So I want to give a little bit of backstory. Okay. So it shows, you know, that I, this wasn't like an overnight thing. And it started long ago when my parents moved into this new apartment building. And little did I realize the significance of the school across the street because I was about to start going there. So it's a four-family apartment, all kids, all families. And I was the oldest, and me and my brothers and sisters were playing. And there was this basement. I mean, it was really scary because, again, I'm five years old. And you know, my sister younger. And I haven't been down there for a long time because it just looked scary. Spider webs all over the place. So finally, they dared me to go in. <laughs> and I accepted the dare and I went in, you know, and I came out with a treasure. 
because all over the floor were these old, torn up comic books. I mean, I learned to read from these comic books and it was just amazing to me. I'd never seen anything like this before. And I decided then that this is what I wanted to do. Now, keep in mind, at that time, I did not know I could draw. <laughs> didn't even know I could write. Now, again, I, I was just starting school, kindergarten. So yeah. <laughs> all of this was new to me. Now, these things were already ripped up and yellowed with age and everything. But I, I just kept looking at them, looking at them and learning to read from them. And eventually, as, I, I, as, I, as time went on, I realized that I could draw and that, you know, this was possible. So... I showed my portfolio at my first comic convention when I was 13 to DC Comics. They were having a portfolio review and, you know, I got shot down. I mean, I was 13, so I wasn't like a Joe Kubert because I heard he started when he was 12. (laughs) So I was nowhere near the genius that he was. Um, But I got some good advice from Saul Harrison at that time and went back in and worked on my stuff. And even though I was rejected, I was still encouraged so eventually I just kept going. I didn't wait for conventions. I just, I just made appointments to go up to D.C. office proper, you know, to see the editors and show my work. And I went up there so often, the receptionist, I think, thought I worked there <laughs> because she didn't ask who I wanted to see. I didn't have to sit in the lobby anymore. And I just went in. So during one of these occasions, you know, a lot of freelancers, you know, hang, hung around the office. Uh, this is before it became Fort Knox. You know, so you got to know a lot of the other artists and people and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And I had just missed the freelance room because DC had gotten rid of that. So it was reduced to the freelance couch by the time you know <laughs> I was there. So I'm sitting on the couch with some other artists. And Greg Weissman's popped his head out the door, which was directly in view down the hallway. And he didn't remember my name, but he said, you. I said, yeah. Somehow I knew he was talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> he said, didn't you show me some magic pages? I said, yeah. So he said, come here. I got a job for you. I mean, this was great. I'm just hanging around the office and I got a job. <laughs> so I went in. He told me that, you know, another artist got sick and needed somebody right away to do the story. Would I be interested? Of course I was. He told me Roy Thomas was writing it. That even made me more interested. <laughs> so, I mean, after I left the office, I did a victory lap, you know, because that was like great. Now, I skipped one part because actually my first story was a, a Green Lantern backup story. Yeah. Because I was in one of the many new talent programs that DC had. I was in, in Italy at the time, in Rome, studying. And I got a call from Ernie Cologne, who was running the program at that time. And I had met Ernie previously before. And he asked me if I wanted to be involved in this. And that was like a major turning point because I, I had decided at that time to stay in Rome. But now I'm being offered a chance to do what I've been waiting all my life to do. So, I mean, that, that, that took a few few days to decide. You know, it was a hard decision to make. And so I came back. So I was in the new talent program, you know, in that for, for quite a few years and finally got the backup story in Green Lantern published. And then after that, things were kind of dry. Now, I was in college at the time, so I wasn't really like pushing to get a lot of work. Uh, and naively, I thought, well, I got one thing published. Everybody would come start sending more work to me. I and mean, that didn't happen. So after that long hiatus, that was when I was just hanging up around the office and, and Greg you know, asked me to draw this. Was so. that story that Weissman offered you, was that the secret origin of Dr. Occult? Yes, 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 it was. We talked about that when uh, I reviewed that episode with uh, Michael Bradley, how much your work on that story really sort of evoked that Golden Age Schuster style. Was that deliberate on your part? You know, did you did you study or did you reference any of those original Dr. Cult stories? Um, No, it wasn't deliberate. And as artists had access to all of DC's archives. Mm hmm. 
So, you know, just go to the library, ask, you know, Kevin, hey, I need some copies of this story. Greg gave me some, but I'm into history and, and especially the history of comics. So I wanted all of the Dr. Cole stories. <laughs> so he made photocopies, gave him all of them, read them, looked at them. And also based on the way Roy works, you know, which, again, is his plot style first. And then he does the dialogue after the drawings are done. I mean, there was a lot of opportunity for me to include things that he didn't ask for. Um, but it worked because there's a few montages in here and one where I had to do one of all the villains that Dr. Colt had run up against. And Roy had picked out a couple. But since I had all of the stories, I did what he wanted. And also I picked out ones that had some very visual elements to them that I thought would be fun to draw. So I tossed those in also. That answers one of my other questions because it was how much detail did Roy put in the script versus how much did he leave up to you? And I've heard from other people that he basically used the old Marvel style, which was just giving you sort of the plot outline and then he would do the dialogue later. Were there ever like specific things that he he expressly asked for, you know, make sure you include this in whatever panel or how much was, was your interpretation of it? It's definitely leaving a lot for me to interpret because as an artist, I got to tell the story visually. And obviously there's points that he wants to hit also. So he's basically in charge of the pacing, what's going on. And then I just interpret that visually. Even though he may end, like it wasn't a page by page. It was just, you know, a plot synopsis. And I think also that I've seen what like current writers think Marvel style was. And it's not what they think it is at all. I mean, because they really do do an outline or just very basic things. I mean, there's hardly anything there. But it really is a plot synopsis. It gives a sense of what the characters are talking about, not, not actual dialogue or conversations they're having. And, you know, basically the flow of the story. And then it's my job as, as the artist to paste that page by page and I always try to end the page on kind of a mini cliffhanger so the reader wants to turn the page to find out what's going on. So, you know, yeah, so there's definitely a, a marriage between the plot and the art, you know, so that you get a comic that's that's worth reading. After that issue of Secret Origins with Dr. Cult, at least in the publishing order after that, you started working on Young All-Stars with Roy Thomas writing again. Did the Secret Origins gig lead directly to that? Did Roy express like any like that he was happy with that? That did Roy pick you, or was that just a, an editorial decision? I think it was Roy because since I had already established a relationship with the Doctor Cult, and I think I spoke to him a few times over the phone also. Yeah, so I was in the process of establishing a relationship with him, and again, it was a case where uh, our artist was not able to complete the job, and I just stepped in. In this case, uh, the artist was just late. He asked me to do some some to finish off the, the issues for him. So, you know, I did that. So it's not always the best case, but that's usually what happens when you're first starting out. You're getting asked to draw stuff that's behind deadline and you can't do your best work, but you got to do it in the time, you know, that's given. Mm-hmm. Your next work for Secret Origins was issue 22, which was the Manhunters issue. Uh, I did that episode with Jeff Nettleton and I, I told him that I was going to be talking to you and he had this one question, which uh, you've sort of kind of touched upon, but his question was, how much work in that issue went into capturing the style of previous Manhunter stories while still kind of maintaining a consistent look across the issue? Because you gave readers elements of Jack Kirby style and Walt Simonson style, yet it's still distinctly its own beast. It's, it's still distinctly yours. Again, was that conscious? Were you, did you want readers to sort of feel the Jack Kirby and the Walt Simonson influence when you were doing that book? Yeah, in this case, I did make a conscious decision. And as far as the style... Uh, some of it, like the Jack Kirby stuff, I just pretty much copied, you know, what Jack had done. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Simonson stuff, I just kind of absorbed the style 
you know, much like I did with Joe Schuster. Uh, and that's the thing, as artists are developing, when they're first learning, they're copying, you know, they copy to learn things. And then later on, it just becomes a matter of creating a mental file in your head and just absorbing stuff. So, you know, I absorbed uh, uh, Simonson's style, so I was able to, you know, do it and do original work when I was doing his. But Kirby's was just a straight, you know, copy from panels, you know, because it was just, and it's, it's really sad for me because I had to put it all into these small panels instead of these big panels that Kirby had. So, you know, it didn't quite have the power. But yeah, yeah, it was definitely a conscious decision. Cool. Still, what continues to be my favorite part of that issue is the buzzard, the villain that you have in that. And I think about that character as you sort of took every one of Spider-Man's classic villains and put them in a food processor uh, because he's so nasty and vile looking. But you look at that and you can see, okay, there's a little bit of the lizard, there's a little bit of vulture, there's a little bit of green goblin, but it's still so unique. And I was like, oh man, I want to see more of that character someday. Yeah, yeah and I have fun kind of redesigning him because he looked kind of goofy in mm-hmm. the Gold Age story. I said, man, there's no way I can draw it like this. I got I to gotta put some booty on this. <laughs> <laughs> you did. He was such a great design. I love that. So, My last for question for this. Uh, as an artist, what do you think was the best lesson that you learned from working on Secret Origins? Uh, the best lesson I learned was to meet a deadline. And to take this seriously, because as a, as a freelancer, independent contractor, you know, I'm not punching a clock. And what I do is very solitary. It's not lonely. It's just solitary. It's just I'm the only one who can do it. You know, so there's definitely a lot of opportunity to goof off, which I did, and save everything to the last minute, which I did. And finally just realize, you know, I can't keep putting myself under, under this pressure. You know, I have a whole month to draw something and then I leave it down to the last week and a half, you know, to start doing everything. And then I'm working like 24-7 like crazy. So I finally decided that I have to treat this like a nine to five. You know, I get up at nine, I'm at my drawing board, ready to work, get myself an hour for lunch, get back to work, you know, end at five. Now, if I want to work more past five, that's fine. But at least I know I put in a full day of solid work. So anything else is gravy after that. So, yeah, the best thing I learned was was to discipline myself. That's great. Hopefully any uh, professional or amateur or aspiring artists or writers, any creatives who might be listening to this podcast will listen to that. That's a really good lesson to learn. So, uh, Okay, let's get to the story that we're actually here to talk about. Now, back on episode 19, Michael Bailey and I covered the secret origin of the Guardian and the Newsboy Legion. That time, we focused primarily on the Golden Age versions of those characters, so I won't recount the publication history of those Newsboys that dates back to the 1940s. The second generation of the Newsboy Legion, who are the children-slash-clones of the originals, debuted in Jack Kirby's first issue of Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, that being issue 133, released on August 25, 1970. Two issues later, Superman, Jimmy, and the readers discovered that the original Newsboy Legion grew up to work on something called the DNA Project, which focused on genetic engineering and that the current brood of child Newsboys are clones of the originals. These second-gen Newsboys appeared in most of Kirby's run on Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, specifically in issues 133 through 139, then 141 through 148, and finally issue 150, published in 1972. 
Issue 142 introduced Dr. Dabney Donovan, one of the founders of the DNA Project, now functioning as a crazy mad scientist with a gift for creating genetic monsters. In 1978, Tom DeFalco and Kurt Schaffenberger used the Newsboys in the Jimmy Olsen strip of Superman Family, issues 189 through 194. After Crisis on Infinite Earths, John Byrne and Roger Stern tweaked the Newsboy Legion and the DNA Project, which was now called Project Cadmus. Cadmus and the Newsboys and the Guardian popped up in sporadic issues of the post-crisis Superman, Adventures of Superman, and Superman the Man of Steel comics. In 1994, they starred in the four-issue Guardians of Metropolis miniseries. Project Cadmus's most important contribution to the post-crisis Superman continuity is the creation of Superboy, the genetic hybrid created after Superman died fighting Doomsday. Since then, I know that Cadmus has appeared in Superman-related comics around the time of World of New Krypton and in the New 52. Outside of comics, Cadmus was a major antagonistic organization in the Justice League Unlimited cartoon, it was pretty significant in the Young Justice animated series, and it was name-dropped in both Supergirl, and Smallville. Uh, Howard, do you know of any other major appearances that I forgot to mention or need to elaborate on? No, I think you got pretty much all of them. As I was going through their history, I was surprised that despite these characters' long history, they've never had a comic series of their own. The only book called the Newsboy Legion as the title that was published was the collection of the Simon and Kirby stories that was published just a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Feels like they, they could be due for something. But. All right. Are you ready to tell our listeners the secret origin of Project Cadmus and the Newsboy Legion? Yes, I am. Okay, this is the Newsboys Legion and the titled story, Secrets of the Cadmus DNA Project. Story and art by Carl Kiesel. Lettered by my favorite, John Costanza. And edited by Mark Wade and Mike Yuri. All based on ideas of Jack Kirby. So the stories open with spelunkers called Probe 6, and they find a lost world underground. Bam! They're attacked and never heard from again. We peep the only surviving photo of something not quite human. Turns out this is a bedtime story being told by Gabby to the other newsboys. Boring. They have a pillow fight. The adult scrapper shuts them down. Big words suggest the boys find a tunnels to the lost world. Adult Scrapper goes back and conversates with the original Newsboy Legion and some black brother. Surprise, they're all talking about the same tunnels at midnight. The adults are worried about people finding the tunnels and the DNA project. They can't have that because the truth can be ugly. And Dabney Donovan was an insane in the membrane scientist who created a lot of ugly. Forearm monsters, vampires, green giant Jimmy Olsen's. What? Donovan must be tweaking because Jimmy Olsen giants aren't usually on the mad scientist list. <laughs> the adult newsboys try to shut Donovan down, but Donovan ain't having that and sticks the DNA alien on him. DNA alien runs buck wild and burns out and Donovan dies. Now, for some unexplained reason, somebody named Sleaze uses Donovan's work to clone the adult newsboys. Meanwhile, the boys are climbing through an amazingly clean air shaft only found in comics, movie, and TV shows. Gappy falls down one air shaft and gets separated from the boys. And because they're named the Newsboy Legion and not the Ninja Legion, the Guardian rolls up to investigate all this noise. The Guardian peeps the Newsboys in the air shaft, but he ain't tripping, he bounces. Gabby's in the Lost World. A giant monster, Angry Charlie, saves him from a giant spider. Oh, snap, Matt Donovan is still alive. He created the Lost World, Angry Charlie, and the vampires he's hanging with called Jagorian. 
Donovan has a cap full of haterade for the Newsboy Legion and orders the vampire to ice him. Angry Charlie isn't having that and scoots away with Gabby. They reunite with the rest of the Newsboys and the Guardians. The Guardian let everything go down because he's been mapping the tunnels and knew where Gabby would fall out. So he went to save Gabby and collect other Newsboys. The adult Newsboys say their clones have been too quiet. Duh, it's 1 a.m. Why shouldn't they be quiet? Even Batman sleeps. Boys are chilling in bed when they check. The Guardian, Angry Charlie, wink at the reader. End of story. All right. Thank you very much for that story synopsis. My first question about this issue, or about the story, is this an origin story? I'm glad you asked, because I think this is the most non-origin story ever in Secret Origins. <laughs> I mean, it feels to me like it was filler for to be placed somewhere else, or to be like an epilogue to another story. Because also, there's a little note says that this happens before the events of Superman number 34, and the cabinet's plotline had been a subplot in the Superman and Man issues. You know, at that time. So obviously this was setting up the return of Donovan. Yeah, and I I want to say, because I read that Superman issue 34 recently in prep for this, and mm-hmm. I want to say that dealt with the fallout of the Bat Boys, like the, the room full of like hybrid Bat children. Uh-huh. Um, there was one other story in this series, the origin of the Golden Age Red Tornado, that was very obviously not an origin story, and the artist created Red Tornado was just like, yeah, I'm, I've already done that story. I'm just going to do a new one. And they were like, yeah, fine, that's good. And I think if you look at the back matter of this, Mark Wade as much as says that Carl Kiesel wanted to tell this story, and it was just such a fun story that evoked the feeling of that crazy Jack Kirby stuff from the 70s, that they were like, yeah, we can put this in there, but yeah, this is obviously, I, I think two panels maybe talk about how Donovan created the DN alien, which allowed the newsboys to clone them and everything, and I think that's the closest we get to an origin, but this is not an origin story. No, not at all. And the thing is, it had the opportunity that you mentioned and the begin- in the beginning mm-hmm. with the Spelunkers, you know, finding this, this cave, this lost world. That's where the origin story should have started and then picked up with Donovan and how he's creating all these clones. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that's because it says Secret of the Catman's DNA Project, but we hardly learn what the DNA Project is. We know nothing about it. Right. This is this is just a sort of, like, this could have been a backup, or this could have been part of the running plotline in the Superman books at this time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, that said, I mean, we, it's, it's not an origin story. I'm not sure that it really belongs in this book. It's still a really fun story. Yeah, it is. And, I mean, Carl did a, a good job on it, because it does kind of have the feel of Kirby... I mean, he's definitely having fun drawing Angry Charlie, and when he gets to draw the monsters, it's cool. Yeah, so it's definitely a fun story. There's no doubt about that. Going through a few things, I, I really like the beginning, even though you mentioned that it's, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the story. We get this little prologue with these spelunkers discovering this lost world full of animals and everything, and then they're ambushed, they're attacked, and the last thing that's left behind is a photograph of a sort of savage primate-looking thing with a spear, and that's on page two, and then if you flip the page between pages two and three, yes, yes. <laughs> there's an ad for Capri Sun. Yes. <laughs> and this particular ad is told as a comic strip with a, a series of jungle explorers, including a little kid in the jungle, with a monkey or a chimpanzee that takes them into the a temple. Now, I have read this story four or five times, and every time I turn that page, I think, oh, yeah, this is the next page of the story. Yes, yes, it, it feels t- like we're going back to DC's gorilla years. Exactly, yeah, and I have to like reset my brain. I was like, wait a minute, this is a Capri Sun ad. 
Why <laughs> did they put it right here on this page? It, oh, so yeah, um, it's so ironic. It's so fitting. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I I really like the the newsboys, especially the kids. I think Carl has a good handle on them. They're each visually distinct. You can you know once you understand how they talk, their little personalities, it you can easily spot them. From from Scrapper to Gabby to Big Words, I love Big Words. I, just, I love the fact that they have a character named Big Words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what other notes did I have about this one? So now the original Newsboy Legion was just Gabby, Scrapper, Big Words, and Tom. Mm-hmm. So Kirby brought him back. He added a black character called Flippa Dippa. Now, I, I like the fact that he brought you know a black character in. The name wasn't really all that good, and he. <laughs> Kind of suffer from the Aquaman syndrome. Like, okay, you know, you got to have stories where he's in, around water for any for him to be good. But one thing I could say, because you, know, you don't have a gang unless you have four people, and you seem to ha- need to have four because one of them is going to be a dud, <laughs> which was Tommy. So Flippa or Flip had more personality than even Tommy. So, so that was a good thing. So I kind of like that. But he never really seemed to, for me, just never really seemed to fit in uh, because he made that aquatic thing. Yeah, and. For me, I, I, again, I'm of the same. Like, I, I want more diversity. I like the fact that they've got another character. But I think I always just get hung up on the name Flippa Dippa. It's, yeah. <laughs> I almost wonder if I would have been happier if they, well, I don't know, I, if they had just like they just remade Tommy a black character. But I don't yeah. know. Maybe that I don't know if that would have been any better or anything. But uh, I don't know. God, then he would have been invisible, you know, because he would he would have been Zeppo, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As for the okay, I was gonna now. As for the grown-ups, Kirby's idea—I I have no idea what it was like. Is it weird that these guys grew up, these newsboys, you know, growing up like in, as these crazy adventurers, growing up on the streets in the forties, that they all became scientists who then cloned themselves, and they have this batch of sort of children clones of themselves that they monitor? Like, that's weird, right? Well, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, I'm going to give you my no answer first. Okay. Because it, it seemed to me there's like throughout, especially D.C. history, you know, whenever you have a father and a son, the son inevitably grew up looking like the father. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I was going to read the comics, I thought that was just lazy drawing on the artist's part. So, you know, when I first saw this, well, when I first became aware of it after I realized that they were um, based on the Golden Age uh, group, you know, I just figured, okay, well, D.C.'s just doing what they usually do. You know, the kids look like the father. So that was kind of within that comic book history and the comic book like reality, you know, that that's not weird. Mm -hmm. But before I knew all of that, it was very weird because Kirby didn't initially have them as clones. He never stated that they were clones. I mean, it could could have been applied, but he never flat out said they were clones. That was a retro thing after crisis. Mm -hmm. So... It was really weird that all four of them looked like the original four. Yeah. You know, when, when it's just one-on-one, you know, Superman and Jor-El, you know, it's, it's fine. You could kind of say, okay, go with it. But when it's four of them, it's, it's totally weird. When they're in scenes together, it takes you out of the story because you're reminded of just how weird it is. You know, so I liked it better when we didn't see the adults and just dealt with the kids. I like the legacy aspect of them. It just, yeah, that, the fact that they would just like deliberately just make these clones of themselves and and just sort of babysit them feels a little weird. And maybe I'm like you, maybe I want a little bit more ambiguity and just never address the grown-up versions. Or had they been clones 
by accident, or maybe maybe if Donovan had been cloning them without their knowledge, and now what? the adults were just sort of stuck with, okay, now we have to take care of these. They're they're our kids, our responsibility. Yeah, and that's the thing because I should have an answer to that, but I, I kind of stopped reading the Superman stories after Byrne left. And then they started redoing the Kirby concepts because everybody seems to re- water down the Kirby concepts. Because in this story that Carl writes, he said some guy named Sleaze kind of blackmailed them into making clones of themselves. Mm-hmm. That would have been a secret origin story right here. A third opportunity. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Dabney Donovan, I love the way he draws him. Mm-hmm. Like that's just classic mad scientist. I love the fact that he's got like this thick jagged sort of black mustache and goatee but yes. even even that he's got like the sort of disheveled like the unshaven look like just like the hair is growing out of his face like oh he, he's great looking i love that character yeah yeah it kind of also goes back to like what you're saying about the mustache to like these the, um the dastardly villains from the from the silent serials and dick dastardly in the cartoons you know that even though his mustache is bushy it kind of it, it's from that legacy yeah Really quick shout out to another podcast, the vampire character in here who's down in the with Donovan, Count Dragoran, um, appeared in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen issues 142 and 143. Those two comics were recently covered by Chris and Cindy Franklin on episode 60 of the Supermates podcast. So listeners should definitely check that out. It's part of their House of Franklin Stein horror series. Getting back to, like, I, I love the, when Gabby shows it, like, when he washes up on the shore, he's just kind of looking around, he's like, hey, what's this little fur ball there? And all of a sudden, it just, like, pops up on these, like, giant spider legs, and it looks terrifying. It's a great blend of the horror of how terrifying that thing looks with the actual comic effect of him, like, running away screaming. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of those elements where I... This story, and I don't think it belongs necessarily in Secret Origins, but as a tryout story, like I, I read the story and I was like, I want to see more adventures with these kids. I, I like this world. As a tryout, this story would make me want to read these characters again. This would make me want to read a Newsboys story or, or comic series. Yeah, I agree. And that's what was so appealing about when um, Jack Barnett back and Jimmy Olsen. And, and that's why, again, I, I love these characters. Because, you know, there's these boys that have these, like, great adventures. And they were more interesting than adventures that, you know, Superman were having or Jimmy Olsen was having even before uh, Kirby came in. Because they each had a a certain skill set and different personalities that you could immediately attach yourself to. You know, you can imagine yourself as one of them. Like, just just the way Robin was created for the kids to be a sidekick to Batman. Mm -hmm. And you could be any one of the newsboys. And that, and that's what I think is, is part of the appeal. And also just ordinary kids put in these fantastic circumstances. Mm-hmm. Stepping away from the story itself, I just had a question. What do you think about the cover? And I'm, I'm curious for as an artist in particular, how you feel about the cover? The cover is a mess. That's kind of what I thought. And I talked about this with Siskoid on the earlier segment. The image itself... I love because there, there's like so much going on. It, it's a it's a great image if it was in the story, but mm-hmm. as a cover, I don't know what I'm supposed to look at. Yeah, there's the only reason that Angry Charlie even registers is because he's red, mm-hmm. and red is the most potent color. Your eye naturally gravitates toward that, and this this looks like Carl Kiesel drew it, mm-hmm. and I think he's trying to invoke those Kirby covers that have all this action going on. But unfortunately, you know, he didn't have the skill set to separate everything out. The background seems a little bit too detailed. I'm getting lost. And I also, like, I don't have a good 
solid hero shot of Guardian or any of the kids. It just feels like there's something obscuring a lot of them. It's a cool image. I like what the image is doing. And again, if this was just one panel within the story, I think it would look awesome. Like if this was a splash page. Yeah, splash page. This is a splash page, not a cover. Yeah, just as a cover. The thing that your eye is drawn to, like the focus, is Angry Charlie who's not one of the characters that I know. Like, if I haven't read the story, I don't know who Angry Charlie is. Mm -hmm. And I know this is supposed to be about the Newsboy Legion and Bouncing Boy and Silent Night, and that's not any of the things where I'm looking at. So Yeah. um, And also, because this this cover cost of composition is not good, you have a lot of tangents, and that flattens out the space. mm -hmm. So there's no sense of depth to anything. Uh, Everything seems like it's all on the same plane. Nothing's coming forward. There's no middle ground, background, or foreground. And that's the main thing artists should always have. You know, you need to separate your levels. Yeah, agreed. I can see that. Yeah. But within the story, I think Kiesel does a great job. I mean, I, I have no complaints about the art inside the story. Um, yeah, the art inside the story, the writing is, is good. I mean, he's on point with the characters. Uh, gosh, I really like these, you know, these panels just on page six when we get the backstory of Donovan creating Double X and then the DN alien and all of these things like... Yeah, this is where the story could have been. This is where we could have gotten an origin story. Um, and maybe they just figured, you know, Kirby did it better than we could do it back in the 70s. Let's not retry it. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of backstory they could have done in here. But again, since it most likely wasn't designed for that. And, and I don't even think about the fact that it could have been an ideal for a continuous series for the Newsboy Legion. I mean, that too. So it could have been filler. It could have been an introduction to start a new series, a new backup series. Yeah. That would have been great. Yeah, I mean that's that's all I've really got about the story. It's like it's it's not an origin story. I don't know that it belongs in the Secret Origins comic, but it's a really good story. It's fun. It makes me like these characters. It makes me want to read more about them. Uh, so that's on one hand, it's it's it nailed it, and on the other hand, it's kind of mixed feelings. But I, I did enjoy the story. I'm glad that I got a chance to read it, and I'm glad I got a chance to talk about it. So yeah, I mean it's definitely mixed feeling because. It's in a book called Secret Origins. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to tell an origin of something, and it falls short in that regard. Every once in a while, Secret Origins did that. I, I remember talking about it on the third annual, which was an 80-page New Teen Titans story by George Perez. And my complaint was that it wasn't an origin of the Teen Titans. It was the entire history, like 30 years' <laughs> worth of continuity up to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway... Uh, I like the story, and and if you wanted to read more about these characters, what would you recommend? Like, wh- where do you think are the best Newsboy Legion stories? Readers should definitely get the Jimmy Olsen trade paperback release with the Jack Kirby stories. Those are the stories that you want to read. The if you can find them, I don't I don't know if they're still in print, but mm-hmm. Kirby's Fourth World Omnibus volumes. I think there were four volumes. If you can still find them, I mean those collect sort of in the story order: Mister Miracle, the New Gods, the Forever People, and Jimmy Olsen. So you get those story, but you also get a whole lot of other stuff. Two other stories that I, I read recently for this one uh, in the Post Crisis Superman issues fifty four and fifty five. There is a backup strip that came out, I think, in 91, like one year after this story did. And mm-hmm. I think it's it's picking up on a lot of those same ideas. Um, Howard, thank you very much for being my guest on this episode of Secret Origins. Where else can people find you if they want to know more about your art, if they want to see you, if they want to contact you? Where else can people find you? 
Uh, you can always find me through my website, which is abadaba.com, which is A, B as in boy, B as in boy, A, D as in dog, A, B as in boy, B as in boy, A. Abadaba, spelled the same backwards and forwards. And I have links there to all of my um, social media. Um, and usually you can find me as Abba Studios on Google, on my YouTube channel, Twitter. Uh, so that's another way I identify myself. And soon you'll be able to find me on Webtoons. So you see a lot of my comic book work there and the original content that I'm producing for myself. And I will be sure to have a link to your site on the show notes for this. What are you doing for Webtoons or what kind of what are you working on right now? I'm doing kind of a um, just regular funny comics. I'm doing superhero style comics and some science fiction. And so a bunch of things. Um because I, I find I have a lot of stories that I want to tell, and webtoons, web comics are, are a great way to do that. Because I could do a short form story, and or a long form story, and also I like the immediate feedback that you know you can get right from the readers. Very cool, very cool. Well, Howard. No, oh, before we go, I have one secret oh, to reveal. Go ahead, go ahead. In the the Clayface Secret Origin story. Yes. I drew the last page with the female Clayface. Okay. Uh, so Kifa asked me to draw that because he wanted it to have a different look because we were out of the flashback sequence. Okay. And so I, I did draw it. Did you do the whole page or just like the two panels with that? No, no the whole page, the whole page. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, that's why, that's why it's a secret I'm revealing. <laughs> <laughs> now, but there's more. <laughs> so I, I'm, say, I'm, I, might, I might have to retroactively change that because I was pretty harsh on my review of that story. <laughs> well, it's only one page. <laughs> So it could still be harsh. <laughs> uh, and so now I'm in San Diego Comic-Con and Al Gordon gets on. Now, I'm not sure if people understand that you can, you can work with a lot of people as artists and never meet them, never know what they look like. Mm-hmm. So even though Al Gordon, I'm familiar with his work and he inked, he inked uh, this page, uh, I never met him. So he saw my name tag and Al is tall. I mean, he is huge. I mean, he could have been a basketball player. So he walks on, and so and he said, "Hey, you're Howard Simpson, yeah." I said, "Yeah." I said, "I'm Al Gordon." He said, uh, "I inked one of your story, one of your pages that you didn't draw." What do you mean I didn't draw? <laughs> so what happened after I turned this page in? DC didn't want a different art style, so Keith redrew it based on my layouts. So it's exactly the way I laid it out, and then Al inked that. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> So it's one of those weird things that happened. Not as bad as, uh, you know, with Al Pastino redoing the Kirby faces and the Curse One, redoing all the Kirby and Jimmy Olsen's faces. But yeah, yeah. Wow. It just shows that mentality was still present at DC even at this time. Well, I mean, when I talked to Hannibal King this year at Boston Comic-Con, he mentioned that when he drew The Secret Origin of Green Arrow, Dick Giordano inked him and changed all of his faces, too, and made them more <laughs> Giordano faces. So, yeah, I guess, like, in late 80s and early 90s, that was still going on. But, mm-hmm. gosh, it seems great. Well, that uh, <laughs> – wow. So, I guess there's no way I would have known that you did draw that page no, from the no, no. That is that is quite a secret. So, well, you know that's good. Then that that kind of balances this out because we didn't get the secret origin story of the Newsboys in this in the segment, but we did get a secret. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> happy happy to fulfill one one part of it. <laughs> good, good. All right, all right. Then we're good. We I can. I can feel clean about this episode then. <laughs> well, Howard, it was great talking to you about this story. Thank you very much for coming on the show and being my guest. Uh, 
this was a very fun episode. This was very informative. I, I loved hearing your stories about how you were breaking in. Thank you very much for reaching out and asking to be part of this because I, I wouldn't have thought to, to reach out to you or anybody else, but uh, I'm glad we had a chance to do this. So thank you once again. Yeah, you're quite welcome. And I mean, this, is, this has been fun for me too. And I've always wanted to be on a podcast. And actually, I just never really knew how to, how to do it because even though artists have an ego, I'm pretty humble and shy. And, you know, there's plenty of podcasts that I listen to. And this one I, I just found recently, as I, as I told you. So, you know, I, I just reached out and, you know, said something. I didn't expect it would come to this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this, this was uh, a group of characters that I enjoyed. And because you did have guests on, I said, OK, well, let me just ask. You know, it can't hurt to ask, you know. <laughs> but I, I've been so shy to be, ask anybody on the podcast, you know, to be on because I just... You know, part of me is like, uh, nah, they won't want to hear anything I got to say. And, and the other, I don't want to go and say, hey, I'm Howard Simpson. You know, you should have me on your podcast. You know? Well, if your story is anything like mine, you'll start off being a guest on two episodes. And then in like three years, you'll have done a hundred podcasts of your own. <laughs> so anyway, one more time. Thank you very much. This was a treat. You're welcome. Uh, happy to be here. Ha- have fun. This was great. Thank you, Ryan. Quick little drop-in, because there was another secret that Howard shared with me after we finished recording. He designed the cover for Secret Origins issue 22, the Manhunter story, and Walt Simonson drew the cover based on Howard's design. Also, we forgot to recommend the comic DC Retroactive Superman the 90s, which features the Newsboy Legion. And Howard definitely should have remembered that one because he was a background artist on that issue. Okay, now we're going to take another quick break, and after the promo, Gene Hendricks and I will reveal the origin of Silent Night. Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember... Not the song, in case you thought that. Don't don't get your hopes up for the song. Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such shows as The Hammer Podcasts and The Quantum Cast. I'd like to tell you about some special shows that I'm doing with some of your favorite podcasters. These shows are all about the live-action versions of comic book characters, and I'm calling them... Legends of the Superheroes! In each episode, we'll be looking at a different TV show or movie featuring characters like... Wonder Woman! Dr. David Banner. And let's not forget about the non-superheroes, such as... Swamp Thing! William Buck Rogers. And many more. Look for the Legends of the Superheroes specials under the Hammer Podcasts at twotruefreaks.com.
we're back for one more secret origin, and I promise you, unlike the last story, this one's actually an origin. My guest is a returning favorite who recently appeared on the inaugural episode of Gimme That Star Trek, right here on the Fire and Water Network. He also hosts the Hammer Podcasts over on Two True Freaks, as well as the Quantum Cast dedicated to Marvel's cosmic defender, Quasar. And all of that somehow makes him the perfect guest to help me talk about the secret origin of the Silent Knight. Please welcome back to the show, Mr. Gene Hendricks. Hello, Gene. Hail and well met, Sir Ryan. <laughs> How are thee this fortnight? Thine are awesome. That, that wasn't even close, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Star Trek and Quantum Bands notwithstanding, you are a bit of an Arthurian fan, are you not? Uh, just a little bit, yeah. Uh, in fact, if anyone listened to my show, the episode that came out of January of this year, it was not January, February, Luke, Jack, and Eddie and I were talking all about the Arthurian movie Excalibur. I did listen to that episode. Good one. That was the impetus for me to actually get into all the Arthurian stuff is that movie. I actually, from that, I read Le Mort d'Arthur. Okay. which my parents had a copy of, <laughs> a leather-bound copy. It was actually a very nice book. And that led me down a long road of various comparative Arthurian myths because they have changed over time. And it wormed its way into my role-playing life because I now play a, uh, a game called King Arthur Pendragon, nice. which someone who is even more obsessive than I am went and wrote adventures for every single year of the stories, including, I think he's down to like 10 or 15 years before Arthur was even born. <laughs> <laughs> That's dedication. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, I, the, man, the man makes a good living off of it, so I can't I, blame I him. I respect that. Gotta love that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But you also, I mean, you were a fan of the adventure fantasy stories in that genre. I mean, you were a Robin Hood fan, too, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, I love Robin Hood. Uh, anything where you have the old kind of folklore, but set in a more action-oriented. If you read La Morte d'Arthur, it's very, very dry for most of it. Mm -hmm. But when you translate that to a television show or a, a movie it tends to get ramped up on the action. So, like, if you read the old Adventures of Robin Hood, back when he was an actual thief, where he was stealing from the rich and keeping it, <laughs> and then you come forward and then you translate that to the screen with Errol Flynn in the title role, it just gets my blood pumping. It's it's just a great romp. And normally these the people that do it take the subject matter very seriously, and try and do the best job they can with it. But there's also, there's always some kind of humor involved as well. So it's not just complete drama. You have a little bit of, you know, fun with the material, which is always a good thing. Did you have any history or familiarity with the character of the Silent Knight prior to this story? None whatsoever. <laughs> good, good. I, I believe I had heard of the Silent Knight only because of the Who's Who podcast. Okay. All right, but since then, we've both read a lot more of his older adventures. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I first discovered this character in an issue of The Brave and the Bold, not the classic one that most people think of, but the new one that, well, the relatively new one that came out almost 10 years ago now by Mark Wade and George Perez. That and, was volume three, I believe. Yeah, and, and I always 
forget to tell people about that. Like <laughs> since I've been doing this podcast, somehow that book like keeps leaving my mind. But when I was kind of doing more of a deep dive, and even before that, when I was just putting you know kind of like my toes in the water of DC, some of the books that really opened my eyes to like more than just like the classic Justice League characters were, of course, Darwin Cook's New Frontier. But a lot of it was that Mark Wade Brave and the Bold series. That's probably where I first discovered the Challengers of the Unknown and Blackhawk and the Doom Patrol, and in this case, the Silent Night. So I, because I really liked that story, I was game to read this one. And then, of course, we went back and read some of the classic Brave and the Bold stories to prep for this one. And The Silent Night debuted in the very first issue of The Brave and the Bold, published back in 1955. Listeners should probably know that long before The Brave and the Bold was a team-up book, it was a historical adventure anthology series, with three main stories per issue. From the beginning, the three ongoing features were Golden Gladiator, Viking Prince, and of course, Silent Night. After five or six issues, Golden Gladiator was replaced by New Adventures of Robin Hood. Silent Night's feature ran in the first 22 issues of The Brave and the Bold, with every story written by Robert Kaniger and all but two of the stories drawn by Irv Novick, with the other two by Russ Heath. And that was it for his publishing history for a long time. His last original story was published in 1959, and except for the occasional reprint, he would not fight again until the 1980s when Who But Roy Thomas would bring the Silent Night back in the pages of All-Star Squadron 54 and 55 as part of his tie-in to Crisis on Infinite Earths. Still, The Brave and the Bold truly was the home for Silent Night. He, along with Viking Prince and Robin Hood and others, were featured in a text piece in Brave and the Bold issue 87 in 1970, and then issue 116 from 1975 reprinted The Silent Night's second adventure. Then, after seemingly everyone but Mark Wade had forgotten about The Silent Night, he popped up again, as I mentioned, in issue 10 of the new Brave and the Bold series that Wade did with George Perez and Jerry Ordway. In that story, Brian Kent the Silent Night teamed up with Clark Kent, better known as Superman. And most recently, Silent Night appeared in an issue of Scooby-Doo Team-Up, because Scooby-Doo Team-Up doesn't mess around. That book picks up everybody from the Secret Origin series. It's awesome. Gene, do you know of any other Silent Night appearances that I missed? Only cameo appearances. I know that he was in the actual Crisis uh, mega series, mm-hmm. but he was just a background character. You, you've hit on everything where he was actually part of the story itself. Are you ready to tell our listeners the origin story of Silent Night? Why, yes, I am. The secret origin of the Silent Night. Writer, John Strand. Penciler, John Koch. Inker, Gary Martin. Letterer, Johnny Workman Jr., Colorist, Tom J. McCraw, editor, Mark Wade, and The Silent Night created by Robert Kaniger and Irv Novak. Our story opens in a stable at one of the king's castles. The stable boy, Brian Kent, is cleaning up after the horses when the teenage prince comes in with Lady Celia. Brian, who has a severe stutter when he gets nervous, annoys the prince enough to get a bucket thrown at his head. Brian runs off to a secluded pool and proclaims his love for the lady he just met. The pool isn't secluded enough, however, since two men start making fun of Brian and a fight ensues. The fight is broken up by King Edwin, who admonishes the two men for fighting two against one. Seeing as how Brian couldn't defend himself, the king orders his retainer, Sir Grot, to take the boy on as an apprentice. Grot is less than pleased with this, but does as his king orders. When Brian meets his fellow apprentices, though, his stutter disappears due to the camaraderie that he feels with them. One of the duties of an apprentice is to clean out the mews where the hunting birds are kept. 
While he is getting lectured on obedience by Sir Grot, Brian observes the hatching of an egg. Sir Grot laments that the bird's older brother will get the larger parts of the kill and might actually just kill the younger bird. Brian is so against this that he holds off the older hatchling, calling him Brute, until the younger, who he names Arthur, gets his portion of the meal. One day, the king shows Brian that his upsetting of this natural order allowed Arthur to become stronger and kill Brute. In a rage, Brian renames Arthur as Slasher. The king tells him not to be too hard on the bird, since it was only following its instincts. He cautions Brian that humans can either murder or nurture, and that a strong man must choose which path he will follow. Over the next several years, Sir Grot worked Brian twice as hard as the rest of the apprentices, never letting him make a mistake. Then, Prince Percival fell ill and died, leaving the king without an heir. This meant that the king's younger brother, Sir Oswald, was now the heir apparent. The prime minister and court magician don't think very highly of Sir Oswald, however, voicing their objections to King Edwin. In fact, the magician believes that the prince was murdered by dark forces at the behest of Sir Oswald. The king informs him that he will be jousting his brother in the tournament the next day, even though he thinks that Sir Oswald is trying to accidentally kill him. The king has always won in a fair fight with his brother and does not intend to show cowardice by refusing the challenge. The king does speak to the magician privately, however, which the reader does not see. The next day, King Edwin arms himself for the joust. He speaks to Sir Grot and tells him to read the parchment that has been prepared should he somehow be killed. It appears that the king was right to prepare for that eventuality as, during the charge, the king's lance splinters, but Sir Oswald strikes through shield and armor, driving into his brother's chest. Sir Grot reads the parchment on a hastily erected platform on the field and informs the citizens that, while Oswald may be king, Edwin has appointed a champion to act for justice. The new king burned the parchment and sealed Edwin's armor in a trunk, which was then thrown into the deepest part of the moat. If any were to bring the chest up, they would suffer death by torture. King Oswald, however, is haunted by the spirit of his brother at night. Edwin's ghost never threatens him, though. In fact, he never speaks at all. Meanwhile, Sir Grot has informed Brian that he will pretend to be inept at training, and they will train in secret in the Forest Perilous. Sir Grot plans to bring the late king's prophecy of a champion come true. As they are speaking, however, Slasher breaks free from his cage and flies out towards the forest. Brian runs after him and is led by the hawk deep into the enchanted forest until he falls down a hole. At the bottom, Brian finds the chest containing King Edwin's arms and armor. Even though the armor is too large for him, Brian wants to try it on anyway. There is magic at work, though, since Brian grows to fit the armor and the sword feels perfectly balanced for him. Brian worries that the magic could be either good or evil in nature. He doesn't work for long, though, as he climbs out of the hole and Slasher leads him to the dead body of Lord Pembroke, a man with no enemies. Brian's attempt to look for the murderer is interrupted by the cries of Lady Celia, who is being attacked by the bandits who killed her father, the aforementioned Lord Pembroke. Brian keeps silent, lest his voice and stutter reveal his identity, but attacks the men. Between his efforts and the protection by Slasher from a sneak attack, Brian soundly defeats the villains. Lady Celia dubs him the Silent Knight, and Brian comforts her as she grieves for her father. One of the surviving attackers made it back to the castle and reported to the king, which Brian, now back as well, overheard. The man was convinced 
that they faced the spirit of King Edwin, even though he never spoke a word. All right. Thank you very much. So I think we both have some thoughts on the story. <laughs> you could say that, yes. <laughs> and I think both of our thoughts would be different had we not read any of the original stories from The Brave and the Bold. So yes. <laughs> there's certainly a lot of differences, and we can kind of go through those one at a time. But what were your overall big picture thoughts on the story? See, here's the thing. Knowing as much as I do about the Arthurian literature, and believe it or not, dear listener, this is set during the time of King Arthur. Uh, you don't really get any of that from this particular story, but that is something that is clear in the Brave and the Bold stories. But knowing what I know about that time period, there is no way, no way that a stable boy would be taken by the king and made a, a squire. It just, it wasn't done. There was a very, very strict class system in place. And in order to be a knight, you had to be of the upper echelon. You, and even the peasants, even the farmers, if they saw this happen and knew that Brian was raised from one of them to be trained as a knight, they would shun him. They wouldn't trust him because he was acting above his station. So that, that's something that just jumped right out at me when I read this story the first time. And the difference, because, and we're making the distinction because in the original stories, he wasn't. He was the son of Lord Edwin. Right. And so that's why they had that connection. And when Lord Edwin dies, uh, he's sort of taken under the protection of uh, Sir Grot, uh, basically sort of to protect him from his uncle, who would I mean, have a reason to kill him, and seems to constantly put him in danger and jeopardy in order to secure his position of power. That's like a running theme throughout the original Brave and the Bold stories. Right. And it feels like the difference here of making him a commoner who has like this sort of secret destiny, I don't know why, and maybe it's just the difference of times, but this feels like a Marvel type of thing of making him an everyman hero who kind of rises up that seems like something that came about during the marvel age of heroes like the spider-man effect mm. because i've mentioned this uh, on a couple of other episodes and i talk about this a lot that one of the differences between the dc heroes and the marvel heroes is dc heroes they would be superior people whether or not they had costumes and powers you know, if Bruce Wayne never put on the cape and cowl, he would still be one of the richest men in the world, one of the smartest men in the world, one of the best detectives, one of the best fighters. If Hal Jordan never got a power ring, he would still be a daredevil test pilot. If Barry Allen never got struck by lightning, he would still put criminals away as a CSI. You know, these aren't like commoners. These aren't, you know, just everyman type of heroes. These are the alphas. Yes, and, and one of the things about this that I noticed is in this story, as I mentioned in, in the synopsis, Brian, when he finds the armor, puts it on. Now, it's almost the same thing in the original story from Brave and the Bold number one. He finds the armor. He says, there's no way this is going to fit me, but I want to try it on anyway. In this story, he magically grows to fit into the armor. In the original story, the armor changed to fit him. So in this, I'm getting the sense that they're saying, well, the armor and the spirit of the king are imbuing him with all these powers, whereas in the original, and I've read all of them, all the Silent Night stories, Brave and the Bold, number 1 to 22, and both All-Star Squadrons. And everything in that, yeah, the armor isn't so much magical beyond it fitting to him 
as it's Brian being the superior knight that makes it, everything happen. In fact, it, later on, they really get involved with the Arthurian stuff, and both Galahad and Lancelot acknowledge the Silent Knight is the best knight in the land. And that feels very much sort of in keeping with the type of sword in the stone mythology. Yes. With that type of legend that there's only one person in all of the lands who can actually do this, who can have this effect. It's not that the armor enchants him and makes him a better, stronger knight. It's that he is worthy of it. Right. It's, you know, like, for example, Lancelot in the story of the Castle Perilous. Mm-hmm. There was a legend about this castle that basically said, he who lifts up this stone and finds his name there will be the lord of this castle. Well, everyone that tried was killed in the attempt because under the stone was a dragon. Mm. Well, Lancelot said, I'm Lancelot, the hell with that, I'm going to do it myself. He went out, he lifted the stone, killed the dragon, and there's his name. Galahad, there was a seat at the round table. Now, you have to remember, it's not shown quite this way in just about anything. But the legendary round table was big enough to seat 100 knights. And when a knight joined the fellowship of the round table, his name would magically appear on a golden plate, like a plaque, on the table in front of his seat. Well, there was this one seat called the Siege Perilous. Siege being seat in Latin. Mm -hmm. And the prophecy was anyone who sat in that seat before his name appeared would die. You get a lot of this, don't do this unless you're worthy or you will die. Mm And that was Galahad. When Galahad appeared at court, suddenly his name showed up. You know, Arthur drawing the sword, Lancelot defeating the dragon, Galahad taking the siege perilous, and Galahad's actually the guy that found the grail, too. And all that works with Brian as well, because he gets this armor and sword, and it just allows him to be the knight that he knows he can be, but circumstances are preventing it. Because in this one, it it seems like there's an actor behind the scenes because we see that the the king's armor is put in a chest and it's thrown into the moat and somehow it ends up in the Forest Perilous, which, by the way, I love the name Forest Perilous. And that's Hmm. one of the things that they did maintain through both this story and the originals. One day he's just going through there, he's chasing Slasher, and he finds it. And that, that discovery, I think, feels more... Destined, maybe a little bit in the classic one? Yeah, it's a little more forced because in the original, it's still him chasing after Slasher, which you don't have this whole backstory with Slasher's name or anything. Mm -hmm. You're introduced in the first issue, oh, this is my hunting hawk Slasher. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that's his name. But Slasher leads him into this glade, and the armor is actually up on a hanger hanging on the tree with the sword next to it and the helmet. And it's always referred to as this secret glade. And sometimes Slasher leads him to it. Sometimes he finds it on his own. But it's always real close to where he needs it, you know? So it's it's almost like the forest itself is doing this. Whereas in this one, it's almost a little more involved, you know? In the original, the forest maybe provides the glade and the enchanted armor and possibly moves it around for him. In this, it's almost like the Merlin or the court magician cast a spell and said, okay, yeah, that went in the moat. Now teleport that over here 
with two torches next to it so you can see what you're doing. It, it's it's just a little more, like you said, like there's more of a motivation behind it rather than a natural magic. Like a druidic magic in the original story is more of a, a forced magic in this one, if you understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And, I mean, I guess my my excuse for that, my reason for that is the original story was, what, eight pages? And this yeah. one is 19. It's more than double that amount. Mm-hmm. So Jan Strad, I never know how I'm pronouncing this guy's name. <laughs> Phonetically, it doesn't look like it, it reads right. He, I mean, he certainly takes some liberties. He does a lot to pad this story, but some of the liberties he's doing, he's he gives Brian a stutter. He gives him the speech impediment, which is a nice kind of charming affectation to give the character so that there is a reason for him to remain silent because if he speaks and he can be identified for his stutter, that puts him in danger and then everybody knows who he is. So I understand their reasoning for doing that, but at the same time, it still puts him, like what you were saying, it puts him in the slightly lower class. It makes him more common and less the knight who is worthy, who earns this. Yeah, and the thing with the voice, in the original story, he has to keep silent for the exact same reason. He doesn't have a stutter, but it's still, these people will recognize my voice because they all live in this small community. He was also, he was the prince. He's the son of the king. People know him. Yeah, so it's still the same thing is, I know everybody here. As soon as I say a word, somebody's going to know who I am. Which was interesting in the the All-Star Squadron story because in that one, he speaks... And his base, his reasoning behind it, he says, well, I'm obviously dreaming, so I'm not even going to bother keeping silence. <laughs> you know, there's no one around that I know anyway, although he appears next to the Viking Prince and the Golden Gladiator in that story, which I thought was a very nice touch. Hmm. Some of these changes, they almost, if you, if you go by the original, compare it to this, the original story starts on page nine of this story. Uh-huh. So the first eight pages of this, they, you could have used it to build that exact same thing of Brian's family, his connection with Sir Oswald and Sir Grot and Lady Celia, but do it so it actually matches the original story. Don't change it around like this, because your criteria of whether it's a good secret origin story or not is whether it makes you want to read more about this character. Well, this did. Reading this made me, oh, wow, it's a a knight in that time period I like. It's going to be really interesting. I want to know more about this. So I went and I found more about him. And I like the original stuff better. Yeah. I I would have much preferred you take the original eight-page story, expand it to the 19 pages with your backstory and everything, give Sir Grot more of an internal thing, because in the original stories, This is where you get a very interesting Silver Age kind of concept going. Brian doesn't want to admit to anyone he's a Silent Knight, even though Lady Celia keeps saying, well, I love the Silent Knight. Lady Celia keeps dropping hints and helping Brian out like she knows he's the Silent Knight, but won't say anything. Sir Grot treats him horribly to the point where Brian's wondering, you know, you're my dad's friend. Why are you doing this to me? And internally, he's like, well, if Sir Oswald ever finds out you're capable, you will die. So I keep having to make you into this buffoon, but he never says it. Everyone's trying to keep these secrets, and sometimes they work across purposes, sometimes they actually work together. 
You don't get any of that here. You get Sir Grot in this story wants to be Alfred and Brian becomes Bruce Wayne. I will train you in the secret so that you may take up the mantle of the the champion of the people or the pitbulls if you're Zorro the Gayblade. <laughs> <laughs> and Lady Celia in this is practically non-existent. She's in the very beginning and the very end and that's it. She's such a major player in the Brave and the Bold. It's it's a shame of what they did to her here. And I agree. I, I like those other characters. I like the just the sort of the dramatic tension, the interplay, especially between Brian and, and Sir Grot, and and what we know Grot's intentions are versus what he's allowed to tell Brian for the sake of keeping the kid alive. Mm. And wh- what you were saying, where they kind of like the backstory that they choose to seed in the front half of the story versus what is actually in the original. It seems like they want to make him the commoners, the peasants' champion, and everything, but. It's not like there wasn't already a precedent for the original sets because like with his father, the king, newly killed and his uncle trying to usurp the throne and being as dangerous, it's like we know that story from Hamlet. It's a pretty common tale. It's yeah. not, it's not like, you know, that wouldn't resonate or you wouldn't be able to understand that. I mean, even hell, the first Iron Man movie does the same story. <laughs> yeah, really. It and it's It's almost odd because if you think of the Arthurian knights, the chivalric knights, the whole point of them, a lot of the feudal history is might makes right. I have the arms and armor, therefore I'm in charge. The Arthurian stuff, and yes, most of this was written in the Middle Ages, and it was morality plays more than anything, but the idea behind that was might for right. So the Arthurian knights, of which Brian would be one, were already champions of the people. They weren't of the people, but they were champions for the people. So uh, my comparison to Zorro. Don Diego was an aristocrat, but he dressed up in a special outfit and fought against the tyranny of the government to protect the commoner. That's exactly what the original version of the Silent Knight is. He is just that in a medieval setting instead of a Spanish California setting. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand why, except that they could. You know, why make the change? Well, we can. No one's going to go back and read the first 22 issues of The Brave and the Bold. (laughs) And that's really the thing. Like, I... I liked this story. I thought it was really good until I went back and read the originals. And the weirdest sort of comparison I would make it to is when I first saw Superman Returns, it had been so long since I saw Superman the movie Mm. between them that when I saw Superman Returns, I was like, oh, yeah, I love this story. This is a really good movie. I don't know why everyone hates it. And then, like, a couple months later, I saw Superman the movie, and I was like, oh, oh. (laughs) It well, clicked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Superman Returns had some really good ac- set pieces and action beats, but the story was, oh, there, there's making a love letter to a previous movie, and then there's just redoing it. Oh, so that was that was disappointing. So I, I kind of I feel the same way about this one. Like having read the original story, but also just some of the other Brave and the Bold stories with Silent Night. I'm, ah, the changes that they made. They're first of all, they're just unnecessary changes. That seems a little bit more egregious. You're not making changes to make it more accessible or to update it for the times or new audiences. It just seems like they were taking a different storytelling approach and maybe betraying some of the integrity of the material accidentally, maybe. I could understand it if this was going to be the jumping off point for a new Silent Night series or a backup even. 
but they didn't do anything with it. Mm-hmm. They changed the origin, changed essentially changed the character, and nothing. In fact, I would even argue that the Superman Silent Night story mm-hmm. owes more to the original Brave and the Bold than it does to this. I, did, I would agree. It seems like they did it because they could do it rather than for any appreciable reason, for any any anything meaningful, really. And it, it just, it's a little, you know, it sticks in my craw a little because it is, I mean, really, I, I don't know why Silent Night stopped after issue 22. I didn't do any any research on it, but it was such a, it was such a good feature in it. Uh, I mean, the Viking Prince didn't even last beyond issue 24, so it's not like there there was a whole lot else going on. I mean, Suicide Squad was in it for three issues, and then this piddly team called the Justice League of America showed up. Yeah, nobody ever heard from them again. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I think it's a character... I don't know. I'm not sure what else you can do with this character. I mean, like you mentioned, I I absolutely love the the story from the Brave and the Pulled issue 10, which has the Superman meeting the Silent Knight, which is only a short. It's only like a third of that actual issue, because part of it also has Aquaman teaming up with the classic 1960s Teen Titans. But that story with Superman and Silent Knight, that's such a good story, and it does feel that it feels true to the character and the the Arthurian roots and that classic the code of chivalry and and I I just like the way that character was presented there, and that's that is that gets my highest recommendation if you can find that story. Yeah, that one was really good. I mean the the only drawback to that is that the majority of the story is told in one page as yeah. a and you know we we did all these different things. We're not going to show you, right. <laughs> except for one little image of each challenge, but it still felt like one of the old Brave and the Bulls. It felt like a classic Silent Night story that just happened to have Superman, and apparently whoever wrote it was channeling Roy Thomas because, well, he's Brian Kent, therefore he must be Jonathan Kent's ancestor. <laughs> they They don't make it explicit, but they certainly... That's certainly a line at the end. It's uh, yeah. It's not Martha. It's not why did you say that name? It's it's a little bit more restrained. It's a, it's that. a little more subtle than that. Yes, right. I'll give you. I'll give you that one. Yeah. <laughs> but but I liked it, and I I've enjoyed reading the the classic Brave and the Bold issues. So listeners, if you can find those two, I they, I don't think they've been reprinted, um, but if you can find them somewhere, those are good stories. They are. And in fact, now that I'm done with this Silent Night, those first 22 issues, I only read the Silent Night stories. I'm going to go back to number one. I'm going to start reading the whole issue because there's, as you said, there's Silent Night, Golden Gladiator, Viking Prince. There's also a two page text piece in there, plus a bunch of like at least two humor strips, which are a page each. Yeah. And it, it looks like it's a really good all-around magazine to read. And I've, al- I've always wanted to read more of Kubert's Viking Prince. Um, and then right around issue five or six, you get some Robin Hood stories. So, Check Yeah, the Golden Gladiator didn't really last very long, did he? Eh, <laughs> uh, eh. Uh. I was just looking here. Let me see. Uh, I'm not going to count issue number one, because issue one was the three characters all together. But out of the 22 issues that had the Silent Knight in it, he was on the cover for 13 of them. Yeah, and I think in the first issue he gets the third story, but after that I think he gets the lead feature in a lot of them. Once they go to Robin Hood, Robin Hood tends to be the lead story. Even if the Silent Knight is the cover story, 
Robin Hood is the lead story. But then they drop Robin Hood and just is Silent Night and Viking Prince. And at that point, it's just Silent Night is the first story the entire time. All right. Well, before we leave, any final thoughts on the Silent Night? I really wish they would do more with him. I mean, it's it's such a great character. And I think probably why they don't is they can't integrate him, even though was it in the 2000s they said that he was a a former incarnation of Hawkman? That sounds right. He's got a hawk as his emblem, so (laughs) therefore he must be. So he's related to Hawkman and Superman. (laughs) But I I would really like someone at DC who is able to put Silent Night off on his own, just do an Arthurian thing. You have Silent Night and you have the demon and maybe a few others mixed in. Just do some really classic Arthurian tales. Don't worry about the rest of the DC universe. You've got a multiverse back. Make this like um, Earth A, you know, Earth Arthur. And just go to town. Have Read these 22 stories and just base it off of that. They're all fun, which is the best thing I can say about comic book is I had fun reading it. I think it's got to be like they've got to do a new anthology series and they've just been so reluctant to do those for so long. I don't... I don't know if they sell well enough, but yeah, I would I would love to see, see him fit somewhere in there, some kind of new new saga of this character. But anyway, Gene, thank you very much for being on the Secret Origins podcast one more time. Where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Well, uh, if you want to see anything that just pops into my head, you can go every Thursday to thehammerstrikes.com. That is my my blog where I post something geeky every Thursday, and it's completely random. It's just whatever happens to pop into my head. Uh, Obviously, recently I did a post on Star Trek, but I also did a post on timers in sporting events and uh, whether or not you should get the dining plan when you go to Walt Disney World. So all over the place. (laughs) If you want to hear me just ramble on, I have several podcasts over on the Two True Freaks Network, which... uh, Ryan was very nice to point out. And before we go, I just would like to say that this is my third appearance. Should have been my fourth, but circumstances beyond my control. But my third appearance on this show, and I had a great time, each and every one. And I'm going to be sorry to see this show end, but I'm really looking forward to the next stuff. Because the the horror stuff, that's going to be real fun to listen to. Thank you very much. I'm I'm really looking forward to producing it. I think it's going to be great, and I'm sure I will get you on one of those episodes at some point. Oh, it's going to be hard to keep me off, I think. <laughs> uh, but just to correct you, if you want to be technical, you have been on four episodes because you were on episode 13 with the, the joke segments that led up to the origin <laughs> of Johnny Thunder. Ah, I forgot so. about that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. we'll, we'll call it three and a quarter. Okay, I was going to say, if you want to count that one. but uh, <laughs> And I do thank you for every one of your appearances on the show, whether it was the full story or just... Just a couple seconds uh, to make fun of Johnny Thunder. Uh, whatever it was, uh, thank you for being on this show. It's always great talking to you, man. Yeah, you're going to have to come on my show at some point. No. I'll have to return the favor. No, no. No, <laughs> chance, no chance in hell. So. Uh, uh, I know you don't want to slum over two true freaks. You have this spectacular network over here. You don't want to sell yourself with us. No, I've already done a few of Paul Spataro's shows, so I'm going to have to. Uh... Yeah, no, yeah I... but, but he knows people. <laughs> Good point. 
<laughs> Actually, I, I, I swear I thought I was talking to Dan DiDio the whole time. So, <laughs> Well, it's better than uh, Ray Romano that people tell, tell me sounds like. <laughs> uh, but no, sir, if you ever need me for anything, just let me know. I will. I will. Last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from... Aaron Anderson, Ange, who tweeted his sadness at having nothing to say about the four stories last episode, The Aquaman Shrine, Beta Ray Jacques, Between the Pages, Cash Flag, a.k.a. Al, Cindy Womack, Codeman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Dan at Dinosaur No One, Daniel Budnick, David Gallagher, D.M. Elms, Dr. G, Nerdologist, DS and RS, Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, Firestorm Fan, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Hicks, Jacob Edwards, Jim Bal, Joseph Crawford, J Slab 425, KSC GSF Podcast, Con L, LA Waldo, Longbox Crusade, Nathaniel Wayne, Parker with two K's, Paul Riches, Pod Dylan, Punch Like a Girl, Richard Field, Robert Lewis, the Rollistas Podcast, Rolled Spine Podcast, Scott Rowland, Sean at Sergey Bamba, Silver and Gold, Siskoid, Transform and Roll Out, Treasury Comics, Two True Freaks, Waiting for Doom, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Zach Dyer, and Zavisha. Over on Facebook, we got new likes and shares from Abba Daba, Abel Padilla, Al Sedano, Anastasia Gloom, Anthony Durso, Billy Lacasse, Bob Fisher, Bradley Null, Chris Franklin, Christopher Luke, Christopher Willette, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, Corey Hodgden, Daniel Budnick, David Ace Gutierrez, David Foster, David Trenner, DeBeche, D. Huntsman, Gotham Shioran, Gene Hendricks, Greg Arujo, Harlan Freilicker, Jared Driscoll, Jay Jones, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Leslie Trigg III, Martin Gray, Max Romero, Mike Gillis, Nathaniel Hubbard, Rob Kelly, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Ross, Sean Walsh, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Shag, Siskoid, Tim Wallace, Tom Panarese, Trevor Owen Williams, Valdis A. Kunzins, Van Z, and Vinnie Gianfredi III. If anyone promoted the show on social media and I forgot to mention your name, I apologize. Please let me know and I will correct that on a future episode. You don't have a lot of time to make those corrections. All right, let's head on over to the comments left on the Fire and Water website, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from frequent first commenter Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast. Paul said, Hi, Shag, because Shag said hi to Paul a couple of times last episode. Then Paul said, I agree completely with Ryan about the merit of Ambush Bug in small doses. About six months ago, I found a reduced copy of the Showcase Presents Ambush Bug volume and pounced on it as I thought to myself, I have odd issues of Ambush Bug. Awesome, now I can read everything. I'm still trying to finish that volume. It's impossible to read and enjoy in long stretches. Year None actually reads much smoother and spends a fair bit of time poking fun at Identity Crisis. 
Van Paul added, So glad Shag mentioned Ambush Bug's membership with Doom Patrol in his coverage. This was the volume that ended five months before the New 52. The final issue of that book actually contains my all-time favorite bug moment when the action of the issue is suspended when Ambush Bug has a quick chat with another character and they murmur, What's a Flashpoint? and both decide to get out of the comic before it's cancelled. See, that sounds funny. I can appreciate when characters break the fourth wall and do something with a kind of meta-commentary on the state of the book or the publisher, like before a major crossover event or something. If you've got a character who can make fun of stuff like that, I say go nuts with it. Bradley Null said, Love the Stanley and his monster origin, as I am a huge fan of Phil Foglio. What's New was always my favorite part of Dragon Magazine, and later, I forget the name of the Magic the Gathering mag. My love for DC weirdness mixed with dark humor hits its peak with this Stanley and his monster story. It might not be the best story for other humans, but it's my favorite story from this series. Wow, great, Bradley, that's awesome. I'm glad you like it so much. Although, for other humans, weird choice of words. Darren and Ruth Sutherland of the Trekker Talkin' Warlords World podcasts also dig Phil Foglio. Darren said he was unfamiliar with Stanley and his monster, but that was his favorite part of last episode because he and Ruth are such big Foglio fans. We discovered him, Darren said, first for his excellent cover illustrations for the wonderful myth-adventure fantasy comedy novels by Robert Aspern. I'm sure I copied that down right. Myth-adventure fantasy comedy novels. Hilarious books, fabulously illustrated. Phil Foglio even did a couple of comic adaptations of the first two books that are superb and worth seeking out. Darren also noted, It always seemed so far in the future that I never really thought Secret Origins would end, but listening to issue 48 being discussed makes the end seem all too soon. Of course, I'm sure you will be happy to move on to something new. Well, now you've heard episode 49, Darren. What do you think? We're even closer. Rob Kelly of the Fire and Water podcast, Film and Water, Pod Dylan, and even more upcoming podcasts I can't even tell you about said, As much as I loved Ambush Bug, I agree this story wears out its welcome. Maybe a one-pager would have been better, in keeping with the Bug's penchant for thumbing his nose at fans. Rob goes on to say, I liked the Trigger Twins entry, but then I am partial to Trevor Von Eden. Ryan, have you ever read the Green Arrow miniseries he drew around 1982 or 1983? I think it's his best, most accessible work, plus the story is great. If you haven't yet, give that a try, and if you don't like the artwork there, I think Trevor Von Eden is a lost cause for you. I have read that miniseries, yes. I like the story that Mike Barr came up with. But no, I wasn't crazy about the art. I thought it was better in the first issue, but it got worse from there. Dick Giordano did a decent job of cleaning up Von Eden's rough parts, which he did again in the first Black Canary miniseries. But the style, the layout, the panel design, the sparsity of backgrounds... No, his work on that Green Arrow story just didn't do it for me. Uh, and then to answer our direct questions, Rob clarified his favorite comics ranking. His favorite single issue is Justice League of America issue 200, with the Lady Cop story in first issue special a close runner-up. But his favorite single story is Whatever Happened to Rex the Wonder Dog from DC Comics Presents. David Ace Gutierrez said, Ugh, ambush bug. Total daily character. A little goes a long way. Then he said, Shag is always a delight, and Trevor Von D is a master illustrator. I'm pretty sure David was drunk. Professor Allen of the Quarterbin Podcast and Relatively Geeky Network said, The Parliament of Rooks podcast has covered a couple of Stanley and his monster stories. They sound like a hoot. They are. From what I have read, they are. Jeff Nettleton said, 
I have the Stanley and his monster stories from after they pushed the always excellent Fox and the Crow out of their comic. They're pretty good. Not up to Fox and the Crow levels, but good. DC actually handled comical stuff like this quite well in the Silver Age, and I find they hold up very well. Sugar and Spike goes without saying, but Fox and the Crow was fantastic. The Three Mouseketeers was always good, Inferior Five was wonderful, as was Angel and the Ape and Stanley and his monster. The only things I haven't sampled are the Binky stories and the licensed celebrity books like Bob Hope and Jerry Lewis comics. Phil Foglio was the perfect choice for this kind of material. Diablo Frank from the Idol Head of Diablo and the DC Bloodlines podcast asked how long I've been waiting to use the song Sunshine Superman for an appropriate character. Honestly, Frank, I almost used that song on like four previous episodes. Uh, Frank left five pages worth of comments, and I would have bet Frank didn't even own a copy of Secret Origins 48, but apparently I was wrong. Uh, I am not going to read all of his comments. In fact, I am only going to read his comments on Ambush Bug. If you want to know what Frank thinks about Rex the Wonder Dog, Stanley and his Monster, and the Trigger Twins, check out the comments section at the website. Except I will mention that his comments on the Trigger Twins, Frank reminded me of the adventures of Briscoe County Jr. I had completely forgotten about that show, but I used to love that so much. That is actually where I first discovered Bruce Campbell before I ever saw Evil Dead or Army of Darkness. Anyway, Frank said, I never asked about the secret origin of Ambush Bug because I knew Shag would have had his hand up on some Facebook thread I didn't read, probably before I even knew that Count Druncula guy was going to spin this show out of his podcasting debut on Fire and Water 100, which I was waiting to hear before asking him to do something for Rolled Spine to make sure he didn't sound like a spaz. <laughs> I'm sorry I let you down there, Frank. Like a resigned understudy, I still secretly hoped near to Curtain Shag would have had some minor accident with his vocal cords, like helium inhalation related, that he could promptly recover from, but that would unfortunately only happen after his replacement was required to make Curtain, even though I again never once voiced interest, and in such an event we'd most likely end up with other last-minute fill-ins pointing at Ambush Bug going, what the frig is this? Dude, Frank, all you had to do was ask, man. You think I enjoy knowing that Shag is the most frequent guest on this podcast? Frank goes on to talk about his reading and collecting history with Ambush Bug. Then, obviously, I love Ambush Bug. I have an uncommon affection for Giffen's Munoz period and the nine-panel grid. Plus, I have bought too many terrible comics by Giffen and others chasing the dragon of more material of this stripe. I started trying the tick in 1989 and stuck around for the earliest issues that were the most obviously indebted to the ambush bug strips before it diverged into yet another Daredevil Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles riff, though I liked the cartoon and the few episodes of the live-action show that I caught. The tick definitely started out as a rip-off, but it did so after Ambush Bug was no longer a going concern, and it was obviously the more accessible, audience-friendly option. Part of what I love about Ambush Bug is that, as an extension of Keith Giffen, it is exclusive inside baseball and often caustically satirical. The creators are making jokes for themselves and their friends, not for the masses, and Giffen especially most likely doesn't care if anybody else goes for it. Deadpool, Harley Quinn, and more owe him a debt, but they also succeeded in a way he never could by learning lessons he disregarded. Then Frank talks about the comedy inspirations behind the Ambush Bug comics, and also how and why that comedy might not have aged as well. Then he says, A point I'll concede to critics is that Ambush Bug was best as a short strip in an anthology, with his longer stories supporting an entire issue, but multiple miniseries in a short span being an overreach. Even the stocking stuffer acknowledges within the story itself that it couldn't support the length of an annual, and goes down the tubes after the first half. 
as the anthology format died, I think the bug would have been best served as a special, made up of several separate stories and features, ideally worked on when the muse struck, every two or three years, and it would have been nice if he could have guest-starred in other books like Blue Beetle and Hawk and Dove, with Giffen and Fleming as the fill-in team. The Tick and others showed the basic premise could survive, and even thrive on analogs and the more conventional storytelling of the earlier strips. As for the specific secret origin story discussed, like Ryan, I kind of wasn't into it at first, but it grew on me over the years. The strip is still mired in its burnout period where Giffen's bitterness and obtuse storytelling overwhelmed the funny, which was dispelled by the nothing special and most of year none. Giffen was obsessed with restrictive encroaching bureaucracy disallowing ambush bugs antics, but at least we get the ridiculous revamps, the put-upon Verl docks, and other cute bits. Speaking of which, that's Mutt and Jeff in the retirement home, with one trying to impress the newspaper strip syndicate in the hopes of getting back into the funniest page. Context is very important for a lot of these gags, and I suspect the speculator boom was a juicier target than random DC offerings from 1989 involving short-lived boutique business like the brief ascendancy of painted comics. Not only did you have to be there, but you had to be hip, and I only checked one of those boxes when the book was released. Wow. Uh, I don't know if he's ever mentioned it before, but I never would have guessed Frank was that into Ambush Bug. This podcast teaches me something new all the time, and if that is the lesson for today, well, that's an underwhelming lesson, but okay, whatever, moving on. Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks, 90s Comics Retrial, and another upcoming podcast that I am really excited for but can't tell you what it is yet said, I will never get tired of Foglio, which is funny because I didn't like my first introduction to him, which was as the guy who drew the goofiest-looking Magic the Gathering cards. How dare he not take the Cloud Pirates seriously? But at this point, I love pretty much everything of his that I've come across, and this is no exception. Which reminds me, I need to catch up on Girl Genius. Nathaniel also said, Ryan, I am so happy you found an excuse to get a sound clip for the whip in there one more time. Now you just need one extra Shazam. You're welcome. Jimmy McGlinchey said, Stanley and his monster I only know from his miniseries, which is hilarious. It takes elements from Neil Gaiman's Sandman, adds a foe John Constantine and Phantom Stranger, and just has a blast. Phil Foglio did a great job with that series. It would be great if he did more work for DC. Uh, then Jimmy says, I remember the reintroduction of the Trigger Twins during the Nightfall saga. It was a funny start, but they soon ended up being the lame villains of the week that would annoy Batman before the true villain came along. The only character I really followed in the Western genre was Jonah Hex. Whatever people may have to say about the New 52 initiative, they did try to bring the Western and war comics back into play, and All-Star Western was an excellent series in my opinion. I read the first trade of All-Star Western. It was good. I mean, it was basically Jonah Hex published under a different name. So, yeah, it was good. Uh, as for the war stuff that they put out during the New 52, I never really got the sense that they had a lot of conviction in those books. It felt to me more like they were trying to maintain the trademark or copyright for some of those characters and concepts. Might be wrong, but that's how it felt. I got a comment from Victor Wachter who said, I want to give a shout-out to Matt Fiesel who drew the stick figure page of the Ambush Bug origin. Matt self-published, and by that I mean photocopied and stapled together, not-available comics, starring Cynical Man and Anti-Social Man. I love those names. Never heard of that book, but I love those names. They were all drawn in stick figures and featured a dry sense of humor that I really enjoyed. His work was just popular enough to get a Cynical Man one-shot by Eclipse Comics, an appearance in Munden's Bar, a one-half issue of Scott McCloud's Zot, and I guess one page from DC Comics. Whenever I think of those 80s wave of independence from Eclipse, First, Comico, etc., my mind drifts to Matt Fiesel, and I wish he had done more. 
Victor added, Bob Fisher was a great guest, and I really appreciated his perspective on Western comics. And I have often said that I think Stan Lee and his monster would have made a great amalgam comic. That would have been funny. I'd, I'd like that. Uh, and the last comment comes from Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. Thanks for another terrific show. I especially enjoyed hearing Bob talk about telewesterns. I went straight to YouTube and looked up Have Gun Will Travel. I was expecting the hero to be much more handsome. So shallow. Off to grab my cap gun. Alright, finally, I received a new email from a listener named Terrence O'Malley. He writes, Hi Ryan. This note is long overdue. I've been listening to the Secret Origins podcast since June, but I am not going to catch up before you're canceled. Okay, quick correction of terminology. We're not being canceled, we're just ending. The series is done. I have not commented in any of your forums, but I want to let you know what I think of your efforts. Well worth it. This has been a tremendous undertaking. You suckered me in more effectively than Undertow. Even when I have disagreed with comments about the books or talked back aloud to my podcast player, I have great respect for all the work and dedication you devoted to it. Thank you. I tuned in because of the link Cisco had provided. I have been following Legion of Superbloggers for over a year. That led me to seek out the podcasts of my favorite Secret Origins stories, Crimson Avenger, Golden Age Batman. It also coincided with my recent purchase this past free comic book day of some mid-twenties Secret Origins books to plug some holes in my collection. My reaction to those stories made me want to hear some more discussion on them, so once I heard my favorites, I started listening to almost all. I confess, I skipped the Captain Marvel and Firestorm episodes. One of the reasons for writing to you is to give my perspective. I am older than you, and the run of Secret Origins coincided with my cessation of regular comic buying. I think that you and most of your guests didn't fully appreciate the significance of the book in its time. This was a treat for a DC fan. For the preceding ten years, there had been a no-reprint policy in place. The abundance of collections, trade paperbacks, and archived editions of today could not have been seriously imagined back then. This was vital for the Golden Age characters. For me and many of my comics-reading friends, the inclusion of DC's Golden Age characters in chronological order was a huge selling point for the book. We knew that many backstories were or would be changing, and we were mighty curious as to how it all was supposed to have fit together, especially with the elimination of Earth 2 and other parallel worlds. So, what Roy Thomas was doing was showing us what had happened. Many times you took issue with the how he chose to tell his stories, accusing him of just dictating the originals. My point of view is, that is how it was. That was the dialogue those characters spoke. That was the chain of events that took place. I think he did an admirable job trying to justify some of the goofier aspects of those stories without resorting to everything you know is wrong type of rewrites. This book wasn't the place for that. Also, this was one of the few times that the DC Acquired Heroes had a chance to be seen. Even though I think you might have been a little harsh on Roy at times, and ticks and flaws certainly get magnified when one is listening to consecutive episodes, it seems that once that aspect was removed from the book, you had a better appreciation of him. That was my favorite part of Secret Origins, even if the stories and or art were not what I had hoped they would be. I am not a regular follower of podcasts, and know nothing about your podcasting community. It took many episodes to get the joke about Shag. Likewise, in many of your early episodes, you and your guests seemed to assume the audience had a greater familiarity about that little slice of fandom, as well as later creators and stories. It seems only fair that you allow Roy Thomas his writing idiosyncrasies, as you have your own podcasting idiosyncrasies. Uh, regarding the love-hate frenemy status with Shag, I think you missed some of the context for that dynamic by not listening to episode 4, which was the Firestorm origin. Maybe go back and listen to that for a better familiarity of how we interact? 
Or maybe don't. I mean, I can't in good conscience recommend listening to more Shag. See? There, I did it again. Terry concludes his letter saying, Thank you for letting me express that. Thank you for this wonderful podcast. Keep up the good work. I hope someone has a party for you after issue 50. Yours in comics, Terry O'Malley. Well, Terry, thank you very much for that letter. I always appreciate getting feedback from new names and voices. You certainly gave me a better understanding of how some readers might have viewed the Roy Thomas issues of Secret Origins, especially if those stories were not as well-known or accessible during that era. My thoughts on Thomas's contributions to the series have often fluctuated, but you're right, I can certainly afford him some idiosyncrasies. And that, my friends, wraps up episode 49 of the Secret Origins podcast. We have one more issue to cover, and brother, it's a big one. Six stories, six guests, at least four of them pretty good. I know endings are often bittersweet, but I really am looking forward to this. We will have to wait a little bit longer, though. Episode 50 will not come out next week. It will instead drop on Monday, October 10th. And then about two weeks after that, I'm hoping to have the CODA episode, which will include episode 50 listener feedback, as well as my final thoughts and reflections on the series. I want to thank all of you who listen to this podcast and everyone who supports this show by liking, sharing, favoriting, and retweeting. Thanks to everyone who leaves a comment on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, or the website. And very special thanks to my guests Gene Hendricks, Howard Simpson, Shotgun, Natalie, and Siskoid. Especially Siskoid. You have become one of my best friends in this endeavor, and I could not have done this podcast without you. Siskoid appeared on three of the first nine episodes, and actually one of those stories we had to record twice. Early on, when this show was still sort of forging its identity, Siskoid set the tone for this show with a consistency that helped me find the voice, the rhythm of the Secret Origins podcast. I am grateful for all of the work you have contributed to this show, and I am honored to have gotten to know you through our collaborations on this podcast and on the Fire and Water Network. Siskoid, this one's for you. Que tous ceux qui sont dans la vibe, que toutes celles qui sont dans la vibe, que ceux qui sont assis se lèvent. Allez maintenant on y va. Ces soirées là, avant même qu'elles aient commencé, on est déjà dans l'ambiance. À peine entré sur la piste, on lâche nos derniers pas avec bien plus de style que Travolta. Pas le temps de souffler dans la foule, on part en reconnaissance. C'est la seule chose à laquelle on pense. Chacun fait son numéro pour en avoir un. Vu qu'on ne sans rien, pas moyen. Ces soirées là. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed in the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believe covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no Copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Jusqu'à l'eau, on les aime jusqu'à l'eau, bébé. Elles sont toutes bonnes à croquer, mais c'est sur elles que j'ai craqué. Qu'on dit à les craquer, quand mes yeux sur elles se sont braqués. Bon, là, elle est seule, je fais quoi Je vais lui parler Non, vous mieux que je me calme avant d'y aller. Mais qu'est-ce qu'il attend pour venir me voir Bon, j'y vais sinon, je vais encore le regretter. Ah, enfin, c'est décidé, peut-être que ce soir. T'inquiète, la soirée ne fait que commencer. Ouais, ouais. Pour qu'on 
Ça, 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 ça,